Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemaluski. Chema, how are we today, my man? Chema's feeling great, dude. Another beautiful day out here in Southern California, man. Looking to get this one going, dude, for sure. I am, I am so stoked for this episode. Really am. Uh, so let's start it off with a little lightning round question before we get into everything. Uh, Chema, you have one call to make to help for help in an impossible situation. Are you calling Jack Shepard, John Locke, Walter Bishop slash Olivia Dunham slash Peter Bishop, um, the Fringe Crew, or are you call, calling Kevin Garvey or Angela Abar? All right, bro. I got to tell you, I'm going Angela Abar on this, and I will tell you, it is rooted in trust. I really don't trust the other characters to get me out of this impossible situation. And, like, it's nothing against some of these characters. They're all very intriguing characters, but, like... John Locke, him and I are going to have a clash. I already know that for sure. Just ideology alone. Jack Shepard, fuck you, you good-looking asshole. Like, I really want to take orders from a good-looking dude. And, like, the um, the Fringe crew, like, they don't necessarily strike me as impossible situation-type people. Like, they definitely seem like a really cool crew to, like, do experiment with and, like, you know, get loaded and have a good time. But not the impossible situation. And, like, Kevin Garvey... I honestly think that Angela Abar would kick his ass, even though I am a, on the Justin Thoreau uh, hype train all the way. So it is Angela Abar via trust. Uh, Chema, I am 100% with you. Um, Angela Abar all the way. I have her like a, a few, let's say like a half, you know, like a half inch above the above the French crew. As, as, a, as a French fan, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what the, the Bishops and Olivia Dunham did together. But like mm-hmm. all of those, a lot of their solutions came with like, little caveats that are like side effects or like weird, like the solution to this problem, it fixed the problem, but it caused another one a lot of times in fringe. So that's, as that's what happens with mad scientists. Like the answer is never as, as clear as it, as it should be. So Angela Abar, you know, despite the, the body count that uh, was left in her wake and Watchmen, probably the most trustworthy. And I'm with you on all the other ones, which leads me into a little bonus lightning round question. Who are you definitely not calling? Like, who is absolutely never going to be given consideration for a call? Okay, like, with this one, I'm going with Locke on this one. There's just something about this particular guy and the craziness, and not to mention being a Lost fan and following this character over time. This is just kind of one of these people that, like, while he may be good for certain things, things um, like if i ever need like a, a pick me up if i'm ever feeling like uh lost in my faith or inspiration or something but i'm just not calling him in the impossible situation mm-hmm. like there's something about and i know he's got a lot of stuff that would make me s- some supernatural stuff the dude even came back from the dead for crying out loud but it's just not necessarily i don't really want all that baggage in the impossible situation like i want the the person with agency the fucking person who can take action the fearless person and stuff. And out of the list of characters, I believe Angela Abar is that person. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And actually for very similar reasons, I also, it, uh, John Locke was not my number one, but like I kind of put him down here as sort of a, it, John Locke might interpret the situation wrong, like which happens plenty in Lost. He just has mm-hmm. a, he has an incorrect read on what's actually going on. Um, and if that's the case, then things could go real sideways real quick. But for sure, the people that I'm not calling Chema, I'm not calling Jack Shepard because he's he's an asshole. He he is such an asshole, and this is this is the one character from Lost that like if they were to redo the show now, he would be vastly different. 
he mm-hmm. like there was this point in time where like there is there's characters like Jack Shepard. You had the you had um you had the the show House, um like these sort of like very unlikable lead male characters that were like a thing in the early two thousands. There's just mm-hmm. no way they write Jack Shepard the same way. And similarly, Kevin Garvey is also up there because I have zero trust with Kevin Garvey. He is right. like there is so much going on with him that I just I have. I have zero faith that things will end up well if Kevin Garvey, Kevin Garvey comes to my rescue. Yeah, he's such an up and down character and stuff like that. Like, and in terms of when you really need him to be not up and down and stuff, and like in the leftovers, particularly, like this dude was just kind of he was getting ready to abandon his family, like carrying a rock into the lake and stuff like that. And then once you get further along in the season, you do start to see all of these just like I, I don't necessarily wouldn't call them like inconsistencies but it's just these moments where like i look at this guy and i see stronger characters on the show like mm-hmm. like matt for example like matt might be a lot stronger than kevin garvey in certain situations uh, yeah Maybe, i would agree as as a whole, like as a whole, the, 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 the debate is still out there. You know, with one of those expressions on, you know, if I can give the honest thing as a whole, but there's a lot of times where like, I feel that Matt is more of a man of action than Kevin is because Matt has got his head on straight. It may be straight toward the Lord, but he's got his head on straight. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There's, this is a, I'm sure this is something we're going to be talking about quite a bit. Kevin Garvey doesn't figure himself out until he's in his sixties. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I I, or, you know, near 60, like that's, that's how long it takes him to figure himself out. And that's sort of a, as something, again, that I think we're going to be talking about quite a bit as we get to this podcast, which is, I, I don't, I, you know what, I'm not even going to quote unquote name this one, but Chem and I are taking on a deep dive of Damon Lindelof. Um, at least, I mean, I don't know if, if you have any objections to this. For me, he's like TV's preeminent writer. Um not necessarily based on like the success of shows because like that goes to probably to Shonda Rhimes or someone, um, mm-hmm. you know, she has these network juggernauts basically. Um, and even Netflix juggernauts, like it's, it's different, but like in terms of, for me, in terms of like the importance of the work, the emotional residence of the work, um, I, I just don't think anyone does it better than Damon Lindelof in terms of TV. Yeah. I got to tell you, he is one of these, television writers that it's almost like with Tarantino in the movies. Like, you know, when you're watching a Tarantino movie, you know, when you're watching a Damon Lindelof show, he's definitely one of the most like distinct voices and everything like that in terms of concept to character development, all that. And he also like has the success to back this up, mm-hmm. you know, to back up all this, like his own style and everything, which, which I think is absolutely great. And if we're talking like television writers and stuff like that, like, he has got to be like, he's got to be in the top five. You know what I'm saying? Even if you're talking, I, I can't even really think of anybody else who like has what he has. Like sure. Noah Holly is killing it on FX mm-hmm. right now, but does Noah Holly really have his own voice? Like is, or like a voice as strong or a recognizable style as Damon Lindelof does. I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And like, he is really, in this like class of his own, it's amazing to see like this because we didn't have this growing up when it comes to television. Yeah, I yeah I would I would agree with you the in terms of like the the, the distinctness of, of his voice. Um, plus, like because of because of how well respected he is, the fact that 
he was able to with and not on his own with obviously like a room full of with a room full of african-american writers the fact that he was put in charge of a project like Watchmen is given the given the subject matter and the direction that they were going with it that like says a lot that that story was entrusted to a white guy that right it had nothing to do with race it had everything to do with the fact that they the way this project was going to unfold that like it needed his storytelling talents and again all the other writers that were on this show too it needed their storytelling mm-hmm. talents and it needed his storytelling talents to bring it to life and in really one of the most spectacular ways like we've ever seen on tv oh definitely dude and like i will completely reinforce everything you just said and i'm gonna throw one very very simple thing out there to lean to the greatness of damon lindelof and watchmen Watchmen got us a federal holiday. When the fuck has an episode mm-hmm. of House ever got us a federal holiday? <laughs> and and like I, I will tell you, like and uh, you might be able to kind of to um, kind of give me some info on this one if you can. But I don't remember. Like I'll be the first one to say this, dude. I I do not remember learning about the Tulsa massacre and the riots and stuff like that in school. I don't even know if it was in our books. It wasn't. And like I, okay, I, like I they, they, I'm pretty yeah. It, no way in hell that this would have been. <laughs> Like the, in our the first the first and, time I heard of it, I, I knew about it, but the first time I ever heard about it was um, in an English class in college because we were covering mm-hmm. we were covering a particular African American writer. I, I the name I do not remember, but they had some relation to uh, to Tulsa and to Greenwood, um, and but like so we talked about it. and I was really intrigued by it, even like like even finding like um, information on it back you know back then it would have been like you know fifteen years ago twenty years ago almost. Um, finding information on it, like, you didn't really get, like, the full scope of it. So, like, the first, like, you know, you, you see, like, you you see, like, some pictures of, you know, of Greenwood on fire, um, you know, from, from the, you know, from 1920. Um, you see some pictures of, you know, of, of white people, like, standing in front of, like, the burning buildings and shit. But, like, you don't get the full scope of it. Like, that, that opening to Watchmen is, was literally, there are, there are descendants that lived, of of people from the Tulsa from the Greenwood massacre, there are descendants that still live in Tulsa that had no idea that happened. So like that was like a wake up. That was like one of the that was a one of those moments where something in our entertainment was also like a cultural wake up too. Yeah, it, I got to tell you, it has been. I don't even know if we've had anything like that in our entire lives where something like entertainment wise just blew the door off of something. You know, it seemed like it would be more of. A, more like something that would happen like when to our parents or something when like a movie just kind of opens up the door mm-hmm. to this whole new thing um but that could easily the with Watchmen and with Tulsa n- never anything like that in my life like mm-hmm. not at all and it makes me wonder if you know like if there was a Watchmen show and even if if they never went that direction would we even know about this would we have Juneteenth as a federal holiday like how long would it have taken for us to finally get this in order to make mm-hmm. people aware of this situation and like a part of me thinks that without this show we would be looking at years like not just like next year this comes out but like years uh and stuff yeah i mean well we were we were going to get juneteenth as a holiday at some point anyway because like that's independent of of tulsa um that's the mm-hmm. that's the day emancipated right. slaves found out they were i mean but like that was right. one of those things george floyd uh, you know the murder of George Floyd. Those were the things that kicked that into overdrive. 
Um, and they, I, and they, gotcha. yeah. So like eventually, yes, but like that certainly hastened, um, that sort of introduction of this, of this particular federal holiday. You're, you are correct. Yeah, in that a hundred percent. You're dead. You are, you're right about that too, dude. Like eventually we would have gotten one of those, like, I mean, that we would eventually gotten Juneteenth as a federal holiday, a hundred percent right on that. Like, I just, like, I believe that watch start watchmen, like kickstarted this long chain of events that eventually led to that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So again, talking about Damon Lindelof here, and we would be remiss if we didn't sort of dive into um, his early, early stuff, the the pre-Lost work. Um, we're definitely going to get to Lost, and there's a huge section here, but there's there's stuff that he that he did, obviously, but no, he wasn't just handed Lost out of the blue. Um, there's stuff, although, I don't know, as we go through here, maybe he was handed Lost out of the blue, but... We're going to go through some of his earliest stuff, uh, and we're going to start with the first thing that he's ever credited with, uh, at least as a writer, and that is, believe it or not, MTV's Undressed. Uh, Chema, do you remember Undressed at all? Because I vaguely remember this. Okay, my experience with this show is, it was the, okay, I knew about it, I maybe have seen an hour of this show total in the years that it went on because it was the last show on the 10 spot on MTV. Mm-hmm. And that's when they, they did like their maybe not newer, but some of their more popular shows like the Osbournes was on the 10 spot yeah. and they had a bunch of shows like odd bill that came and went. So the 10 spot was almost like their TGIF equivalent, but it happened every night. So I remember undress being at the way, way end of this whole thing. And uh, Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, do you remember growing up and we would watch the USA Network and they would show these movies that were probably on Cinemax at one point in time, but they yes. edited them down to yes. be like softcore porn on USA and yep. stuff. And like, just as like two people would go to have sex, it would cut to like, no joke, I've seen this before. It would cut to a woman jumping up and down on a trampoline. I swear to God, I've seen that on USA before, not just on the man show. But um, so they would they would cut to stuff like that. And that's kind of like what Undress reminded me of. It's almost like this TV safe, like soft core. And I'm sure it addresses a lot of important individual uh, issues like, you know, um, sexuality and stuff like that amongst young people. But I would just rather watch Cinemax softcore porn. Like Hot Springs Hotel was in its fucking prime. When Hot Springs Hotel, on, so. what a drop. <laughs> oh, I know, dude. And like, I will tell you, really interesting tidbit of factoid about that show. If you ever watched Heroes, the guy who played Nathan, the guy who was the candidate for mayor who could fly and stuff like that, he had Peter's brother, um, Peter Petrelli's brother. He was one of the main bellhops on Hot Springs Hotel when he was younger and stuff, like way before <laughs> Heroes. So. <laughs> Yeah. So like when that stuff was in its prime and I mean, not to mention like when undress was on Cinemax, Cinemax, you know, finally realized its purpose in the world. So they were just like at the top of their soft core game at at this time. So that's what I watched instead of undressed. Oh man. Yeah. That's it's like, you're right. Thank you for flooding my memories with stuff about the 10 spot. Um, Yeah. Like it's, I think, I think this is why, this is why Undress sort of faded into the background for me because with the, like a couple of exceptions, this show didn't like produce anyone. Like, mm-hmm. no, you can't really trace anyone back to Undressed and go like, oh my God, that's where yeah. so-and-so got their start. I mean, there are people like, right. I was looking at the cast list. I, Brie Turner was on Grimm for a long time um, playing a main character, but like, that's not like a huge, mm-hmm. that's not a huge role. Yeah. That's, that's just steady acting work. Like it's, which is totally great. Right. 
Um, and then I want to say like Sarah Lancaster. I, I flipped it up right now. I want to say Sarah Lancaster came off of there too, on like Chuck or something. But like, no one came off of the show as like a celebrity. Basically, this thing just came in right. Went. Yeah, and like, dude, I saw on the list of cast like Pedro Pascal was on this show. I fucking love Pedro Pascal, but I do. I you would never tell me or convince me that he was on Undressed. It's just Prince Oberon, you know, and right. uh, Christina. Christina Hendricks um, for Mad Men was also on Undressed, but like there's such a gap between Undressed and Mad Men as there was between Undressed and Game of Thrones where I don't associate these people with Undressed. Like it took looking up Wikipedia um, for a specific Damon Lindelof centric podcast to get this information. Right, right, exactly. And you're not like, and we're talking like um, Christina Hendricks is for like a couple of episodes. Um, Pedro mm-hmm. Pascal, a co- you know, like it's not like they were the tentpole characters of M- of MTV's Undressed. So... Right, right. Again, there's just no one... No one comes off of it as like, oh, that's where so-and-so got their start. Yeah, exactly. Like, this would be the show that I would have thought Dan Letterly would have ended up on after that Monster Island show that he was in. I don't know if you remember that, the actor from Nordonia that was oh, yeah, in yeah. Hollywood at the time. Yeah. yeah, like, this would be the show that, like, he would end up on, and, you know, that that's it. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. But, uh, but MTV's Undressed runs from 1999 to 2002. He is credited as, uh, Lindelof is credited as the season four writer, but does not get an episode count. So I'm sure, I, I'm get, like it's an anthology show, correct? Wasn't it? I I think so. so I'm, I'm pretty far removed from it. I don't right. I think it is. So my guess is he probably wrote some story ideas that ended up in like various bits and pieces all over the place that like were just pulled apart. That'd be my guess, why he doesn't get like an episode count. Yeah, yeah, and 223 episodes of this show. I'm I'm impressed it went that long. Well, like you said, though, it was like a was it not on like multiple times a week? Oh, you're right. It was. So that would be yes. I yes, think yes, yes. That I think true. it was one of those shows yeah, it, that was it on was. like twice a week. It was. Yeah, they they did air it multiple times a week. Yeah. I can't remember what it aired up against, but you are right about that. Yeah. So when you are doing multiple episodes a week, it's easier to get right. To that and, in four seasons, easy to chalk up 200 episodes where there's multiples. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, moving on from there, uh, we go to Wasteland, where he gets two uh, episode writing credits. And this is, uh, of note, works with series creator Kevin Williamson, uh, better known for his scream. And I know what he did last summer. And then uh, after this, uh, really fucking nails it with uh, with Dawson's Creek. Uh, Kevin Williamson knows teenagers, uh, apparently. All, all, mm-hmm. all varieties of teenagers. Um, this is like, dude, this is actually where where things start to really get interesting. So this is, again, Kevin Williamson with Sasha Alexander, um, Rebecca Gayhart, and Marissa mm-hmm. Coughlin. Um, and the reason why I bring up Marissa Coughlin, um, better known as Ursula from, uh, from Super Troopers, there was a point yeah. in time in Sasha Alexander, Rebecca Gayhart, and Marissa Coughlin's career where they clearly were all being be- viewed as like the potential next kind of it girl. And it just did not happen for Marissa Coughlin happened to a significantly lesser degree with Rebecca Gayhart and Sasha Alexander obviously had like a long career. It still has like a long ongoing career in very like high profile shows. So um, just, I just find that like trio of like the three main stars pretty interesting. Yeah. Rebecca Gayhart. Um, I, there's images of young Rebecca Gayhart that are ingrained in my mind forever. Like big time fan of, uh, of mm-hmm. Rebecca Gayhart and stuff. And her career was actually like, you know, this is probably just like, you know, me being, you know, starstruck at that time. I was like, gosh, she should be in everything. And then like, yeah. 
over time when I start to like, like, you know, even when I'm watching maybe something she was in 10 years ago that just kind of randomly appeared on my screen, I'm just kind of like, okay, like, yeah, like she's definitely got like, she still has the looks, but like, I just never really saw a lot of dimensions when it comes to her acting and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why Sasha Alexander has been in high profile TV shows basically ever since. And the other two have not. Um, but nothing, there's nothing wrong with being the star of Urban Legend, one of the stars of Urban Legend, however. And good news, they're rebooting Urban Legend with Rebecca Gehart again. Really? Yep. Okay, well, let, believe me, I, that is going to be something that I uh, end up watching whenever it comes on to a streaming service, <laughs> that is for sure. I, I remember her from Scream 2 and like a couple other things around mm. that time period. And I think she might have even made it into... One of the scary movies as well. I could be wrong on that, but I, I'm probably wrong on that one. But like, I wouldn't if you're talking me. like that. If you're talking like that early 2000s kind of like horror-y stuff, like she was one of those, like one of those people like that were in that crop, yep. like uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle mm-hmm. Gellar, Nev Campbell, all the Tori Spelling for, you know, her one or two scenes in screen. But yeah, so like I, I know exactly what you mean, dude. Yeah. I'd be interested to see that. All right, so we go on from Waste. He has two episode uh, writing credits in Wasteland. Um, then we go on to what is easily his most important job. Of course, it's on Nash Bridges. Um, and I, I, I don't mean to say that like, I don't know. I've ne- I've never seen an episode of Nash Bridges. I'm 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 aware of what it is. Um, you know, it's a it's a buddy cop show with uh, was was a buddy cop show with Don Johnson and um, and Cheech Marin. Although they are rebooting it for some reason with Cheech Marin, um, right? But this is clearly his most important job. Has five episode writing credits, but he gets to work with eventual lost executive producer Carlton Cuse, who becomes his writing mentor. Um, so this is clearly like the the first sort of break that he gets is working here with Nash Bridges, uh, working on Nash Bridges. Um, any familiarity with this show at all? Uh, other than Don Johnson is on it, not a lot, dude. <laughs> like this was, this would have been something that, like, you know, I saw previews of and just kind of clicked over and stuff. This is something that it just kind of went over my head. I like Cheech, but I like Cheech with Chong getting high and stuff. Yeah, like that, so. yeah. I mean, that boy. It, it seems like that. It seems like that Cheech Marin is a totally different person. Does it not? It really does. There are times where I can't even believe that it is the same guy. But probably, probably for the best because he's has never been in jail. So um, for extended <laughs> yeah. periods of time in his life. So <laughs> right. But yeah, no. So anyway, um, Nash Bridges he gets to work with Carlton Cuse, um, and it's it, it's obviously like they must have had when they were working together. There must have been conversations about shows that they would that they would theoretically do um you know once once nash bridges was over or they were fighting whatever you know how that works producers leave shows all the time writers leave shows all the time they must have had some conversations because i'm gonna get i'm gonna skip to this question right now chema because when you consider and especially when we get on to the next uh, the next show that lindelof works on it, it just almost seems like it's kind of out of the blue that he would be very early on would be kind of given the reins of, of the creative decisions on lost considering where it mm-hmm. comes from. So he must've had right. some interesting conversations with Carlton Cuse, right? They would have had to have like lost seems okay. Like I'm probably safe to assume that they went in and killed it in their pitch and all, and they probably presented like hands down one of the most like, 
elite show packets, <coughs> casting information, all that. They probably went in there and really looked like they knew what they were doing and stuff. Plus, plus they had the but, goodwill of J.J. Abrams. Yeah, the goodwill of J.J. Abrams is always something to have. Believe me, I would mm-hmm. what I would do to have a little J.J. Abrams goodwill. But like when I look at like when I look at everything, especially this you know this pre lost catalog. They were. This had to be something that they like. Somebody was working on Lost long before the pitch. Whether it's the two of them together, whether Damon started it and Carlton jumped on, or Carlton's like, "Hey, Damon, I got this thing," and they started working on it together. Mm-hmm. Lost is. It's like too, too prepared, too smart, too thick, too whatever you want to call it, to just kind of seem like somebody winged it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so this had this had to be something that was in development for a while, even leading up to the pitch moment. Probably, I, I would assume you're 100% right. Even if the original idea kind of was, um, even if whatever they were talking about and working on while they're together on Nash Bridges, even if that like idea was kind of far from what Lost became, it's very clear they had a very good idea of what they could do with that kind of template. That sort of mm-hmm. open, that sort of open mystery show, like what they could do with it. Yeah, definitely. And like when a lot of these guys, like you know, if you're working together on like a writing staff, I mean, dude, there's literally nothing from stopping you going, getting drinks, and with your other writers and hashing out ideas and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, I'm assuming that maybe some studios have non-compete clauses, but that doesn't stop you from developing stuff. I mean, you and I could, I could work for Dizzy, be on an ironclad thing, and get on the phone with you every night and talk about movie ideas and Mm -hmm. stuff so like those kind of connections and everything that you make like you know these seeds that they plant they eventually grow into very prominent abc show trees yep it's it's one of those and you know like i know that we kind of like are sorry we're always a little bit sarcastic when we say it but this is perfect example of like it's about who you know not what you know necessarily this is a textbook example right here um but anyway so we move on from Nash Bridges to Crossing Jordan, um, a procedural show uh, with, uh, who was in it? Jill Hennessy, I believe. Yeah, Jill Hennessy was the lead. Um, random thing about Jill Hennessy. She always plays someone from, like, New York or Boston, and I feel 100% certain she's from Canada. So, like, I have no idea what her actual voice sounds like because she's always affecting either a New York uh, or a Boston accent. Oh, that's very, very interesting. I swear to you, because she was on on one of the Law and Orders for a long time, um, then this Mm -hmm. show, and like I've I've seen her in other things where she plays a New Yorker. I don't know what she actually sounds like. (laughs) Well, believe me, I would hate to have it be the Boston accent. That is like one, if it's not the Southern accent, I think the Boston accent might be one that kind of gets me a little bit and stuff. It it does get to me. And her, what I remember from the show specifically is that like her dad, I think, is like a, a big part of the show. I don't remember who plays her father. And he has one of the most grating. I don't. I, I, there's no way this guy is from the Northeast because it's one of the most grating Boston accents I've ever heard. Like it's just, it's awful. But anyway, <laughs> Crossing Jordan, he gets. This is probably his second most important job. Um, this is sort of like. This is definitely like him having a lot more responsibility on a TV show. Seven episode writing credits, two teleplay credits, twenty two production credits. Uh, like he's clearly in charge of, of quite a bit with this show. Um, and probably more importantly, again, kind of the who you know kind of things. 
Uh, more importantly, he works mm-hmm. with a lot of lost directors, lost producers, um, in particular Stephen Williams, who I think Stephen Williams directed the second most episodes behind Jack Bender um, of mm-hmm. Lost, I believe. Uh, Roxanne Dawson, Michael Zinberg, Karen Gaviola, and then like the lost producers uh, Elizabeth Sarnoff and Lynn Litt. Um, so like this is where like a lot of the people that eventually will come into his orbit for Lost, where he meets them like the first time. Right, right. Yes, Elizabeth Sarnoff and everything. I saw that she started on Deadwood and stuff. Yep. Went to a went to um, you know, went on to have a couple of shows and stuff. And one of the things that I find particularly interesting about his time at Crossing Jordan is that Tim Kring, the creator of Heroes, yep. was the the showrunner, the creator of Crossing Jordan. Yep. And it's it's funny because Lindelof went on to basically illustrate perfectly how you do an ensemble cast. While Tim Crane uh-huh. totally did not <laughs> with heroes, so um, like it's weird how you know and it, this isn't like that much time that has that has gone by either and stuff like you know this 2001 loss was in 2004, so it, it's just amazing how one guy who writes for the showrunner perfects something that that showrunner later fails to execute. Mm-hmm. It, it was really funny. They Lindelof was on. Um... It was on the one. I, I know I've told you to listen to the podcast before. Um, it was originally about uh, Game of Thrones, but they transitioned to Lost, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's like a deep, a deep Lost rewatch. And Lindelof was on one of the episodes, and it wasn't Lindelof didn't like this. Clearly, wasn't like a shot at Tim Krang, but like he talked about like he talked about how like they insisted on whatever the mystery was, and not just like the mystery box kind of stuff, but like whatever. Whatever they're trying to hold back, they wanted to hold back for as long as they could, to let to let that mystery build, let the drama around the mystery build. And mm-hmm. after his segment, when the when the hosts were like, it was you know it was like a pre recorded interview. He wasn't like sitting in the whole episode or anything. Um, when they got back to the the hosts of the show and they were kind of talking about it, they mentioned how Heroes was, you know, a show that like was really that they they all watched and they liked from the from the outset, but how heroes was so fucking eager to whatever the mystery was boom here's here's the answer to it here's the next mystery boom mm-hmm. here's the answer to it and it's like yeah. when you, you run out of places to go when you do things right. that quickly yes they did they were i man i'm i did not expect you to mention that because you're hitting that 100 percent on the head and the thing that really really sucked about heroes was that they did that. And I, my personal theory is, is that at this time, prison break was, was popular and stuff with when, around the time that heroes was on TV and stuff, it was either prison break was on or it was coming on or something. They made it air at the same time. And prison break was one of these shows where you got like all these crazy plot twists and stuff. Well, yeah, Greg, we already ran out of ideas and had the guy back in another jail by season three and stuff. So that clearly didn't work out for mm-hmm. them. But other shows were starting to pick up on the same style format, you know, because they all kind of borrow and like parody each oh, other sure. and stuff. And Heroes was one of these shows that I felt was going the prison break route where you keep up in the stakes and you keep going to all these mystery reveals like every episode or two. And then by the time you got to season three, they had just exhausted everything. And I mean, it, it wasn't like they did a lot of good plot twists along the way. They made some really, really stupid moves. So when you're trying to 
you know, push your way through mysteries all the time and have these big reveals and be the show that just keeps you on the edge of your seat. Like you eventually like run out of stuff and you, and it puts a lot of your decisions in question. Once the audience realizes that you've ran out of ideas. Yep. There's, um, exactly. And it's funny because there's a show, there's a show I'm going to mention a little bit later. I'll just mention it now, but no, I'll mention it later, but there's a show that, that is a, was a long running show. Um, Mm -hmm. actually, do I have it mentioned? Let me do a little quick check on this and maybe I don't, but, um, real quick here. Everyone enjoys the quiet clicking around of a podcast. Um, (laughs) no, actually I haven't mentioned it here. Um, so, um, Supernatural is a show that just ended last year. Um, uh, which is which is a contemporary of Lost, which is hard to believe. It's on the air for fucking fifteen years, um, but and, and obviously there's that that shows a little bit more episodic in nature anyway. But you know it's it's Eric Kripke um, who also would do like later on. Uh, I think he's I think he's EP of the Boys, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, Eric Kripke's got a lot of TV shows, but at the same time that he had Supernatural running smoothly on the air, he had another show on the air that did the same thing that just tried to. Every other episode, there was a new reveal of a mystery, of one answer to a mystery, reveal of another, reveal of another, and it just it, uh, the show is called Revolution, and it just sort of like oh yeah yeah uh, yeah it just sort of like it made the show feel very like bloated and fast, and it was like so where the fuck can you guys go from here, and mm-hmm. how is it that you can't pace this show out while again you have a show that is that was recently ended that was on the air for fifteen years. Yeah, I know, right? Isn't that very interesting and stuff like that? Like, how do you how do you go from something that's on fifteen years to having something like that? It's uh, that just has to be like a lot of like mistakes in the writers' room that the audience just like they they picked up on. Like, it just had to be real bad mm-hmm. mistakes on behalf of the staff. Uh yeah. Anyway, um, so anyway, just uh, just to bring this back here uh, to Crossing Jordan real quickly. So like again, Lindelof's like this is like his first clear experience in the big leagues as as like a full full-blown um show no, not quite a showrunner but like as a full-blown executive producer um certainly leading leading some stories in the writing in the writer's room um but again like it just i don't i don't want to beat this i don't want to beat this horse uh too much anymore it does just surprise me that like you you make the jump from procedurals to what to what lost is it just surprises me oh i find it to be very very surprising too and like I guess it's just kind of one of these deals where like there is just talent that is trying to get, trying to make a living, trying to keep the lights on and stuff. And this is one of those, like whether it's perseverance, knowing people uh, or just the cream rising to the crop, like it's just very surprising that, you know, you're talking undressed to what could easily be one of the last great network dramas ever made, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So it's, uh, it's almost like the guy, the Chernobyl guy, you know, you're going from dance flick to, to like, Oh my God, Chernobyl. (laughs) So I I guess these things just kind of happen sometimes. And it's very entertaining when they do, because to see these people's trajectories over the course of their, over the course of their careers are, it's oftentimes more interesting than just like, Jack Nicholson, who made it a bunch of cool movies, but it's every character is per- per- perfectly crafted for Jack Nicholson. You yeah, know what yeah. I'm saying there's just not a lot of uh, not a lot of like story there. I guess I think I, I think this is why I know I've mentioned it before, but I think this is like for me why 
why TV shows like the Law and Orders and the NCIS is like actually fill an important role. Like those are, I mean, those things could, Chema, you and I could sit in and write one of these episodes. Like, oh yeah, because we just we know how it's supposed to go. It's a fucking machine at this point. But from that machine, it is giving people like it's it's a trip watching older episodes of Law and Order, especially like from like the nineties, and mm-hmm. seeing someone who like we're real familiar with. And, like, there they are playing, like, a street punk, like, some, like, 16-year-old street punk. And it's like, oh, that's Chris Pine. And it's like, <laughs> right. like, that kind of stuff is always, that's, that to me, that's, like, the function of, like, these kind of shows. Is that, like, this is, they run on their own, basically. So, like, the people that kind of get picked up, either, you know, be they writers, directors, producers, actors, whatever. Um, that's sort of, like, an opportunity to maybe they do something that stands out from, like, the machinery. And like that's where they kind of like get quote unquote I hate the I hate the word but they get quote unquote discovered because of a nice turn in in several scenes in a Law and Order episode or whatever it is. Right, right, yeah. It's like almost like these things are kind of like a educational institution almost for show yeah. business and stuff. And like with writers and everything, I mean, dude, you could be with the way Law and Orders go. I mean, you could pop in and out of law and order like your entire career depending on if you succeed or have to go back to the minors type thing or whatever and like i guess like um like way back in the day they used to use certain shows as vehicles for actors to like build their own show from Mm -hmm. there so like i'm not entirely familiar with like the law and order family tree but like when you have this machine this well-functioning well-oiled machine that's not going anywhere like you could go on this show and get noticed. So like, let's just say for example, that like NBC is highly invested in a certain actor. They see an actor with a lot of potential. They maybe run him on a test episode or like, Hey, we'll throw him on a law and order episode. It's not like he's going to get the show Mm -hmm. canceled, which obviously he's not. And they can make judgments depending on the audience reaction to that character, what to do with that actor in terms of casting him in leads. Is he just going to become one of those dudes who makes the rounds, which is not a bad job to have. I might add, you'll make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, work five weeks out of the year and stuff like that. If you do the NBC show rounds. So I, I think that that's what they maybe use these shows for. It's almost like a litmus test for a potential success of other actors and actresses in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, like, I remember seeing, uh, recently saw an episode, like one of the first, either the first or second season of SVU um, with like a 21-year-old Rob McElnehy, um playing a, playing a part in it. And like he really, he, wow. he legitimately stands out in that episode. Like, you know, partially because obviously, you know, I know him as Mac, but mm-hmm. like he legitimately stands out in that episode. So it's not like it's oh, not surprising yeah. to me that he, you know, even if even if it's always in sunny Philadelphia, never happened. It's not surprising to me that he jumps up to other things like oh I don't know a speaking role in Lost. Right. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yes, he was um, yep. Ben Linus's daughter's boyfriend, right? Uh, no, he was. Um, he was one of the. Um, he actually he's like one of the, his captors at various points oh, when they're okay. when they're brainwashing him. Yes, that's yes. He was in the room, the room with yep. all the, the shit. Okay, yep. that's right. Yep, I totally remember that. And I remember because it's always sunny was on while that episode was on television yep. and stuff. That lost episode, and I was just like, wow, like this guy does other stuff. Oh my god, mm-hmm. like I, it was just because that's all I ever knew him from. And I was like, I was like, is he even allowed to be on Lost if he's on It's Always Sunny? Like it's just kind of <laughs> like one of those things, <laughs> one of those reactions. Yeah. Oh no, totally, totally. Yeah, so the, yeah, you're right. Like I, I like the way you put that. Like these these kind of shows are a litmus test for all sorts of uh, Hollywood talent 
from from acting, directing to writing to everything else. I mean, it, it for sure. Uh, but let's get into it. Let's get into Lost. Um, Chema, do you think you can you can sum up, which is uh, very difficult, but if you had uh, a short paragraph here, can you sum up what Lindelof was trying to explore in Lost? Okay, I'm glad glad I get get this out of the way because this is the one question that I had to keep kind of going back to because I, I wanted I did to make a couple sure times I had too. absolutely absolutely right. Okay, so with Lost, Damon Lindelof is trying to explore the core of our humanity, and you could phrase that however you want to. Right? But I believe core of our humanity and like who we are as people, the human experience is one of the main things that Damon Lindelof is trying to experience, trying to explore in Lost. And like I know a lot of people like might immediately jump to the survival. They may jump to all the crazy like mythology stuff. Those I don't believe are like what he's actually trying to do. The um, the survival element of the show is more or less like the engine and the will they survive being like maybe the narrative question of mm-hmm. over uh, that hangs over the entire show. Um, some of the mythology stuff, these are just basically elements. Um, even some of the destiny versus free will stuff. These are like, like topics that are discussed throughout the show. But if you strip away all of that stuff, it's really about who we are as people and the characters, the different characters represent various elements of who we are as people like john being logic uh, or sorry jack being like a logic john locke being like a man of faith um even charlie could represent like addiction and stuff like that um which is a part of our humanity and how these different elements clash with each other to ultimately shape our behaviors and our perspectives I like it. I like it. Very interesting. By the way, I totally forgot that Charlie was was like a main character for a while there. Um, yeah. Simply because they didn't really know what to do with him for, for many episodes. For Well, for many seasons. Right. Like, I remember we were, Jess and I were watching the pilot last night and like he finds his heroine in the, the second episode and stuff, which he's the, the topic of the flashback and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, Jess is like, they got heroin on the island? And I was like, yeah, they got heroin on the island, and then also like a plane. They find a plane that crashed in there with a bunch of heroin. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. it was, like having to kind of explain certain elements of the show to somebody who maybe is not that familiar with it, it really sounds like you're speaking gibberish sometimes. It's like, why the hell would they have this on here? But when you look at the show as a whole, it completely makes sense. It's like entirely on point, and like his addiction and stuff, while it's not the central storyline, is is a key part of the show. Yeah, no, absolutely it is, absolutely. I like it, though. That, that was really good. Yeah, um, that's, gonna... believe me, dude, like, I went through so much, like, I, I was <laughs> trying to really, like, answer that question, like, the right way. And, like, I, there was times I wrote a paragraph, and then, like, I would do more research, and then I'm like, nah, you really didn't get it. And it was just like, that's, like, that's what I believe it's about, is he's studying us as humans. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong answer to this. Actually, take that back. There is a wrong answer to this. Um, and it's it would be getting caught up in the survival stuff and the mythology stuff. Like, yeah, that I mean, obviously, it's quote unquote about that. But that's just that's just window dressing for like what's actually going on. Um, exactly. So if that's what you latched onto, then like you didn't. For some reason, you watched Lost and didn't get it at all. Um, so, right, right. Which, yeah, which apparently, like, going back and like reading some old articles from like the you know from from 2010 ish, um, a lot of people didn't. So, but anyway, um, mm-hmm. but right. I, but I like what you said there. I'll I'll take this a, a slightly different direction, but I mean, I guess we're we're kind of getting it 
at, at sort of uh, something similar here. I, I, I saw it as Lindelof exploring how the concept of God, uh, the concepts of God, fate and free will are like this really messy amalgamation that guide our lives. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the very, very specific episodes, especially were about questioning and, and wondering where our choices and actions end and where does fate begin and mm-hmm. how does faith fit in this picture? How is, how does faith fit into a picture in which we think that the outcome is predetermined? And if the outcome is predetermined, why is our faith only rewarded sometimes or why is it never rewarded or how is it even rewarded? Um, how do we interpret what's a reward and what's a punishment? It's a lot of these questions about it's a lot about these questions and how we grapple with them in our own way and how some people actually do cope with them and how some people can do cope with them and move on in their lives and somehow and how some people cannot cope with them and are stuck in their lives trying to figure out the, the answers to these questions. Man, dude, I really love that. I really do. And the free will versus gods and, you know, predetermination and destiny, all that kind of stuff. This is something that is just a cornerstone of what that show is about. And in many ways, you could strip down everything, even the, the dialogue, and a lot of the dialogue is about that. And, and I really like the point that you make about like almost like where does the free will end and the destiny type stuff begin and mm-hmm. everything and why you aren't rewarded in certain situations. Like these are all things that – you know, civilization and humanity has pondered since the beginning of time. This is a debate that we are still having in 2016 in the terms of this, like, of this, like, you know, religious uprise and stuff like that, that we've seen in the last, like, you know, more or less since like the Republican Party merged with Reagan in the 80s and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, we're having this discussion, I feel even more so now than ever. And this is going to be a conversation that we as people have until the end of time, because we're really debating like a belief system here. Like, you know, there's the, there's how I view things, which is like, I'm a little bit more grounded in reality and stuff like that. But however, like even I am not beyond taking a leap of faith every now and then I almost feel that like you have to. And I'm assuming that there are a lot of people out there that are, that are like me. And just even that contrast alone, where it's like, how do you really be somebody who's grounded in the real world, but even take leaps of faith every now mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's just, it's stuff that like we don't think about because it's just part of like our everyday conversation. But if you and I were to get, you know, into like, Hey, this is where all we are talking about for three hours. We are going to find that the debate between uh, free will and destiny is way more common than I think we even think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we actually we actually kind of briefly sort of touched on it when we did our time travel episode. Um, like, right. if if certain aspects of time travel are like real, then like, well, then how do we even know like anything that we do is like our of our own choosing? And like, right when you get to especially when you get towards when you get to like the literal end of Lost, but as you get towards the you know the later seasons of Lost, they're like the people who the people who make the biggest transformations are the ones that sort of, I wouldn't say they've like, not that they've given up trying to figure these questions out. They've just accepted whatever Mm -hmm. they've, they've learned to accept whatever, like whatever answer appeals to them. They've learned to accept it and live with it. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and that those are and actually lit in the actual the, the the episodes titled the end the you know the feature length episode um titled the end that's how we get to the afterlife it's the only way you get there is to finally accept all of those mm-hmm. all of the struggles and trauma and everything that went on in your life to get to the afterlife and to meet up these meet up with these people again in um in the afterlife um you had to finally just like accept what's going on and like move on with your life like there's there's right. definitely a message there about acceptance i guess yeah de- definitely dude and, like acceptance is one of these things that it may sound easy to say but it's sometimes very very difficult to do especially when your own beliefs are challenged i mean look at look at all the look at all the flash especially the jack centric flashbacks and all the things that he held on to and and like tortured himself with and brought and brought mm-hmm. with him obviously brought with uh, this is the story of everyone they bring something to the island with them um but like obviously we get a lot more jack centric episodes especially in the, in the in the beginning look at all the garbage that jack subjected himself to and could not let go of i mean it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's too much for any one person and it's not until he has that final conversation with his father in the church that he finally or whatever his father is um that he's finally like let go and is able to go basically join his friends in the afterlife that's exactly right yes that's exactly right and it's one of those very very like symbolic moments but and there's so much weight behind what's going on there in the finale because of all the build-up and the the just the great development that the show did with him and Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. so of our main cast in lost which is absolutely enormous and i don't think i don't think there's any way a show could pull off a cast this big um like nowadays i mean look at the trouble that like game of thrones in later seasons had juggling a big cast um you know like but anyway main cast which is enormous who do you think of as being the most i'm going to use this word a few times here in the next like segment here but who's the most linda lofian character and why and you can take the meaning of Lindelofian and however you want it. Okay. I, um, I went with John Locke on this one. Um, John Locke to me is the most Lindelofian character on the show because I believe number one, that he embodies one of the core elements of the show, which is this, uh, you know, free will versus destiny, something versus something debate. You know, you can interject whichever two words you want there. Mm-hmm. He embodies one of the core, um, dynamics, conflicts of the show. One of the things that I think particularly leans me into the Lindelofian element of it is this, whether you want to call it supernatural or there, he is something more than himself. There's Mm -hmm. a connection that John Locke has with the Island that is just more than himself. It is very much a, almost like God to Messiah type relationship or God to prophet, something like that type relationship. And he's brought back from the dead. He was in a wheelchair, but then he could walk. It's just something about those elements, the supernatural elements combined with him embodying the, um, the leap of faith element of the, of the, of the argument that it just really makes him the most like Lindelofian character. And like over time, he becomes more of a man of action. Um, he becomes more obsessed with this, like you know godly governing more than himself type body that's out there and i think that the conflict that he brings to the show because of his relationship with the island and all the different supernatural elements 
it really, really propels him to being one of the greatest, like Lindelofian characters, not only on Lost, but just out of the post Lost Lindelofian mm-hmm. catalog. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said, and yeah, it, it's it's not a it's not a mistake that it's not it's there's no accident when we first meet John Locke. Um, the way they present him that like we immediately know there's like more going on with him mm-hmm. from from the very jump we know that there's more going on with him and then when we get the reveal of him you know like by the way i was in a wheelchair for the last several years of my life um right like it's clear that he is you know he's this chosen figure and that his he's going to be the one in a very in what's a very obvious um sort of like um, not specifically, but like very um, Christian adjacent sort of way that he's right. going to be the character that gets tested routinely um, by everything that's happening on the island, by well, off the island for that matter. Um, when we see even flashbacks, right. um, he is going to be routinely tested over and over and over again. Um, and it's just like there's you're like obviously we're going to get to this question uh, later, but like there are echoes of that in every single thing that Lindelof does. And this is like ground zero for, for that type of character. Of course, definitely dude. Yeah. You could see how this character influenced everything else going forward and stuff like that. And how these elements that he introduces with Locke that are still just carried on till even the next day, you know, it's almost like Locke could be like viewed as like this, just this prototype of how Damon Lindelof structures characters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you went with Locke and there's that it was, it it was really well said. Like, I love the way you describe him. Um, I went a little bit, a little bit of a different route. And since I already mentioned him, I'm going to go with Christian Shepard. Um, I, I see Christian Shepard as a cipher for Lindelof's direct thoughts on the nature of the nature of God and especially trauma. Um, which is, which is something that Lindelof, uh, well, we'll get to that, but I I won't, I won't spoil that part, but um, this is sort of like the most, you know, every writer speaks to their characters. This, to me, is Lindelof speaking directly, almost as Damon Lindelof, to the characters themselves. Um, you know, he's a borderline mystical kind of character. Like, what is Christian Shepherd? Is he, is is it is it a ghost? Is it some kind of spirit of Christian Shepherd? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is, is it, at least to my interpretation some kind of some kind of manifestation of the island that is taking on that still has it clearly still has like the consciousness in mind of Christian Shepherd because like there are clearly things that he says especially to Jack that are directly pointed to Jack about their experience off the island um mm-hmm. but so like through this character we get like these constant reminders of Jack's unwillingness to move beyond emotional pain um, Jack's constant stubbornness. Um, he's almost Jack's consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. And you really, to me, you really can't paint Christian Shepherd as being good or evil. Um, nor can he like directly influence events, but he can offer guidance or at least what appears to be guidance. It's just up to you to, um, you know, the person that, that, that does see and experience, you know, conversation with Christian Shepherd. It's up to you to believe, or it's up to you to whether or not you believe him. It's, it's a very, he's, I don't, I don't exactly know how to explain this type of character. Um, I don't think a Greek chorus is exactly the right word or the right term for it, but like Mm -hmm. just this character that sort of, 
simultaneously exists and doesn't exist in the fabric of the story. Like it, he's only there for certain characters and at certain times, and it's up to you to believe anything he says. Right. Yeah. There's definitely like this sort of like ambiguity in this character and stuff. And to me, when he was on the show, it kind of reminded me of the relationship that Dexter kind of had with his father and stuff where it's yeah. this almost like um, you're, you're right. His consciousness kind of coming into play and stuff like that. And kind of there to remind the audience of like all of the flaws of like the current, uh, the, the, the lead character, the character that we're so wrapped up with and everything. And the, the fact that he made it like even all the way into the finale, I think just shows exactly how important of a character mm-hmm. this is to the show. And being one of these, like, you know, where he just kind of appears and influences and stuff. This is like, to me, it's like one of these glue characters that Lindelof has Yeah, where it, and believe me, there's a lot of glue with oh, for some sure. of the Lindelof characters, but this is like one of these characters that like when he shows up, it's it's effective. It shows up multiple times and also kind of like glues certain storylines and everything together. And then they all kind of make sense in, in the macro once the story's all wrapped yes. up. Yes. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, the ending. I, you know, he's he's there from beginning to end. Um, when we get to the end that he has that final conversation with Jack. It's again, like, like, again, I, I don't, I don't see it as necessarily like the ghost or the spirit of Christian Shepherd. I see it as some kind of, some kind of amalgamation of the island and the consciousness of Christian Shepherd, because um, mm-hmm. it's clear, because it's clear that the relationship is personal. It's, it's not just taking the form of of Christian. It like it's clearly personal. But like when they have that right. last conversation, it's almost like, it's almost like Christian is sort of congratulating him for making it to this point that like you, after all the conversations that we had, which might've been you talking to the quote unquote, the Island, like you finally got it. Like you finally Mm -hmm. get why you're here and the tone's different, but it's still sort of, but like the tone's a little bit different because it is congratulatory, but it is sort of still the same way that like, like, the same way that he kind of like, you know, he introduces himself and like that, or the way, the same way that he first talks to Jack in like the first episodes, basically. It's yes. not really that different, but it is sort of like a, hey, you listened to me, you made it. Yeah, exactly. Like you finally listened to like your father's advice and everything. You let go whatever you were needing to let go. Now you can move on to the next step. Yeah. So this was, this was actually, this is the most fun I had. Um, which episode of the series? is the most Lindelofian and why, what did, what did you pick um, for this question? And just for everyone out there, Lindelof, obviously he's the executive producer on 116 episodes. We didn't, we whittled it down to the 38 that he had like direct writing credits on, um, which means Mm -hmm. he was essentially in charge of, of crafting that particular story, that particular episode. Um, I know it's a little bit more complicated than that, but you can kind of, you can kind of distill it and you get the idea. Um, so of the 38 episodes that he has writing credits on Chamba, which one did you think was your most Lindelofian? Dude, I got to tell you. So I went through like the list and everything. And this one was one of the hardest questions. Like I landed on the finale for some reason. I don't know if it's me like taking the easy way out here, but like the finale to me just like reeks of Lindelof as what I view Lindelof as my I really wanted to go with this episode called I do, which is like the fifth episode of season two or three. I believe it was the one episode. It was the episode before the winter or whatever break. I think it was the winter break. Yeah. But I realized that like 
that episode isn't really all that like Lindelofian. It's a great episode and like Jack really taking action with the operation and everything. And this is Jack getting his heart broken, watching Kate bang out Sawyer and everything. But it really wasn't all that Lindelofian. And when I think about like the phrase Lindelofian in terms of episodes, like the finale just seems to be where I land because this was supposed to be, I think, the episode that kind of wrapped everything up for everybody. But I feel that I still had a lot of questions after the finale. Mm-hmm. And like, I loved that they ended it with the, the juxtaposition of the very, very first scene with Jack and the dog and everything. And I am totally for the whole purgatory thing and stuff. Like, there's, you know, you can only do stuff like that every once in a while. And if if the whole purgatory thing is going to be... Like if Lost Purgatory thing is the purgatory example for the next, you know, 15 years or whatever until something else comes along, I think it is the like definitive example of, hey, they were just all dead in the end or what, whatever. So um, because there was all these additional questions and because the ending itself, like I even though now like viewing it, it's, it's just something as simple as purgatory, I think back then was something that really, really challenged the viewers. And I, while once again, it is still this very easy kind of concept to wrap your head around in terms of purgatory, but it was just the way that the whole thing was presented, the flash sideways, the character's acceptance about their acceptance of fate and everything. This like maybe redemption quests and stuff like that, that these characters were on kind of coming to a kind of coming to a halt. There was all these really cool stuff going on there, but I still like I didn't have like I I didn't leave the show and be like, yeah, I now know every single thing about that show. Like it just seemed like I wanted more of it because there were just so many questions that I had. And that is the same way I felt the finale of The Leftovers, Um, not so much with Watchmen because he did a really good job of keeping that kind of, you know, where it is, is the one story. But I associate like Lindelofian in terms of episodes is just where it's really good. You have a ton of questions and there's still this intrigue that you have. It's not, it's, it's satisfaction. It's intrigue. It's, it's a bunch of things that are all combined into one. You only really know when you feel it, but when you do feel it, I think that that is how you clearly define a Lindelofian episode. All right. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, so I'll, I'll say this, since I'm, I'm glad that you. So I kind of working a little bit backwards here. Um, I'm I had the benefit of I didn't I didn't watch Lost until recently, and okay. I had the benefit of having seen Leftovers actually multiple times before having seen um, Lost once through, and um, and then and actually I saw Watchmen before uh, before I watched Lost all the way through. So I had the benefit of of that kind of ending um, mm-hmm. before you know, like I didn't see, I didn't see the ending of loss when it happened in 2010. Um, gotcha. So like when I, when I went, when I watched the end, um, the final episode, um, it, to me, it was just this really like, to me, it, it wrapped up in a very way that, De- that Damon Lindelof would wrap up a TV show. And it actually made everything sort of click into place for me that, okay. That, not, I mean, I shouldn't say made everything click into place because there's always going to be questions with any Lindelof show. Um, but like, what it what it answered for me was that the 
the smaller points of things were not important. What was important is that these people, like in the case of the leftovers, the important thing was that Kevin and that Kevin and Nora finally fucking after years, years together mm-hmm. and then years apart, finally fucking accepted each other, and right. and sort of took their own in 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 various ways took their own leaps of faith to to accept each other, um, you know, in, in that episode in in leftovers in Watchmen. It was, I, I mean, there's there's two, you could say there's two endings to Watchmen, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, where it actually ends in the, where the the whole of the action ends in the movie theater, like in which it began with the Tulsa Massacre. Um, mm-hmm. There's that one ending, but then you get the, the ending of, of Angela potentially becoming a god. Uh, Correct. At the right. end of it. But the important thing is that, like, in that, the, the more important thing is the first ending and where she accepts that she has to obviously accept Cal's death, AKA Dr. Manhattan's death. Um, and she has to accept that like, that like her own trauma and pain is like fueling, has been fueling her life too much. And that the only mm-hmm. way she can, she can get past it is to let, is to just let it go. And so for me seeing the end after having seen both of those finales, coming back and watching the end was just like, Oh yeah, these people went through so much, and every day they were kind of tortured, possibly on purpose by a, um, you know, possibly on purpose by a, by a godlike uh, individual, um, to find something uh, out about them. But like, they were tortured every day with like their own failings and and flaws and everything else. For the was it? It was a hundred days even there on the island, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah, so for like that hundred days and like all the trauma they went through on the island for that hundred days, um, they, to get to where they get to in the end was sort of like acceptance that everything that happened there was was critical in understanding that everything that happened in their lives previously. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, like the ending of Lost was just like this really sort of like kind of wonderful and like hopeful hopeful like opening up to like these people have finally even if it's in the afterlife it's they're they're finally found their peace so to me i was Mm -hmm. just like what a great ending to this to this show it like it 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 just it it didn't have the same effect on me because i had a different distance from it right dude i gotta tell you like i love that the the finale was very very polarizing I, i i wish that Lindelof was kind of known as like a more polarizing guy, you know, because this end, this lost ending is like very polarizing in terms of the fans. Like, yeah, I, I don't really I, I'm not like lost was more popular than the leftovers. And I think people had like a very pretty consensus on Watchmen's ending and stuff like that. But yeah, but like I really wish that um, some of the other shows were as popular. So that way, this polarizing debate about the ending could still could still be going on and stuff. And the the thing for me when I was watching Lost, like I caught on, I jumped in. I think season the later part of season one, and I jumped in during a summer of uh, reruns and everything like that. That's mm-hmm. how I initially found out about the show. Uh, kids, and, kids out there, TV stations used to run shows again, right? In the oh summer. my god. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh my God. And like, so this is the great thing. So like I was watching lost over the summer 
and I'm not going to lie, it was a little difficult to follow because I didn't see the pilot. I just kind of jumped on wherever NBC decided to start the rerun and everything. And then they had this episode that kind of summarized everything for me. And I finally got it. And then they stopped showing reruns and the next, the, the next season began like two weeks later and stuff. So, <laughs> um, so like when I was watching it, um, dude, I used to watch the show, um, the night that it came out and then the next day be like all over e.com waiting for Jeff Jensen's like reviews Austin stuff. Cause mm-hmm. this guy who Damon Lindelof actually originally brought Watchmen to him first. I think he was like the Jeff Jensen was like one of the first calls that Lindelof made at after getting or approval or something like that. Or like, Hey, do you want to do Watchmen? One of those kind of things. So this dude, Jeff Jensen would do, we are talking like eight and nine page blogs about episodes of lost and stuff. And oh, I mean, he, he would was, get into he, all yeah, crazy shit. dude. He was, he was EW's lost guru. Like yes. that's that's who you went to, and I know this. Obviously, I didn't watch it at the time, but like they had him on the podcast that I listened to yeah. about about Lost. That this was the person that you went to to get to for all things Lost. Oh, definitely, dude. And like it was like me and like a couple other people that I worked with. Like literally, like there's people like that around me. We're all reading the articles, talking about what this guy is talking about and stuff. And when when you were like a fan that I was at the time, dude, you're having 45 minute conversations about the bushels rustling and what the hell does this mean? You know, what is going to happen next? And it seemed like with all of this kind of fan face to face talk, like not like, you know, not like game of Thrones over Twitter, like actually face to face talks with people and hearing all their perspectives. It seemed like there was so much going into the finale. Um, that I that it seemed like needed to be resolved, um, which may create some of the re- lingering questions that I have. Mm-hmm. But you made a really, really good point, which is what I wanted to bring up is the fact that, like, we got the main stuff. You know, I think the the whole reason as to what the fuck was going on, which is the mo- which I was a question that, like, we never really got answered into the finale. No. That was something that was like the main thing that had to be addressed. Like there was, I just like, I I had to say that like, if the finale had one job to do, it at least had to explain what the fuck this whole thing was, (laughs) which, which it did. So I was, I was very happy that we got that. And then like, you know, like over time, just like some of the lingering questions, like it just kind of fades out, you know, but I I do remember like this, I I do kind of remember like thinking that I was going to get all these answers as I, thought that with every single episode of the show, but it just seems like every time we got an answer, we got a question and I started to associate this with Lindelof's style. And um, it's, I don't think it's as apparent in Watchmen, but it's definitely there in, in the leftovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's there in moments in Watchmen, but only because like, this is a much different Watchmen's such a different adaptation. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, there's obviously room for like some mystery box type stuff, but not the same way as in Lost and the Leftovers. Just like there isn't as much room in the margins for that. that ex- that's exactly right, and a lot of that just being the, the source material and the way he decided to take it, which mm-hmm. I'm completely okay with, oh, yeah. with decisions that he made in that for sure. Oh, for sure. All right, so I'm glad I I'm glad you picked the end because I was I was hoping one of us did because I really did want to talk about the ending. Um, <laughs> It also has some of the best moments. That final episode has some of the best moments mm-hmm. in the entire in the entirety of the entire show. Um, just like thinking about like when you know 
specifically when Locke and or Locke, excuse me, when Sawyer and Juliet wake up, like like if you don't get like a little bit of like a few man tears when some mm-hmm. of these couples and pairings and stuff like wake up in the finale, then like you don't have a fucking yeah. heart. It's so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, dude. I found I mean I cry pretty much at everything. So I mean I was in tears over that over that finale and stuff. And I remember watching it live and it was on a Sunday. It was like when I say, and I said it earlier, we're like lost was like the last great network drama. I can't remember any time really when it seemed like a majority of the television viewing audience was hooked on to like one network drama for a night. Right. And that lost is like the last there. Maybe this is us as game. Like some stuff, eh, but like nah. uh, not as it's not, it's not lost. No, but like, so not. that I, that whole finale on that night, it was just, it was just fucking great, dude. Mm-hmm. It was like, what a way to say goodbye to a show. And like, I remember leaving that with a lot more like happiness in me than what happened when I saw the game of Thrones finale. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked the end. Um, I was debating between two episodes and it was kind of, I was, you know, basically like whatever, whatever we do, any of these outlines, I kind of have like two things in the barrel for a lot of these questions, just in case you pick one that we're like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like I, I want to have something oh, yeah. different to talk about. So I went with, um, with, I went with a Desmond episode. I went with the constant. Uh, from, from uh, you know something that was going to be mine. Okay, there you God, go. That was going to be. Mine too. I went with the constant <laughs> as as the most Lindelofian episode. Um, this is uh, wherein Desmond's consciousness travels through time. Um, he uh, through 1996 or back and forth. I should say through, but back and forth from 1996 to 2004. Uh, and during this trip, he manages to have impacts in both years, in both 1996 and 2004. Um, this is this is one of those Lindelofian touches that that shows up in, in other works uh, where, that we're definitely going to talk about here in a little bit. But we find out that um, as 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 Desmond is bouncing very confused, very confusingly uh, between between the island and um, well, he's Scottish, but is he in Scotland um, when he bounces back? Oh, let me see here. I am on the Wikipedia page right now, and he is at Oxford. No, uh, it doesn't say specifically, but he does end up at Oxford. He does end up at Oxford. Um, but like, let's so let's just call it the UK for right now. But his consciousness is bouncing back and forth between the UK in 1996 and the island in 2004, and we find out that there's he is responsible for things in both times, which is one of these one of these sort of. Um, we actually talked about this before in our time travel episode. Um, it's, it's called Objects with No Origin, which arises from the predestination paradox. Um, mm-hmm. Faraday talks to him in 2004, and when his consciousness travels back to 2006, he gives Faraday the answer. Uh, uh, he gives Faraday the answer that he needs uh, for his experimentation on unanchoring consciousness from time. So this sort of this particular paradox suggests that the only way that Faraday ever could have gotten this the answers to his work um which had like uh what was it like the the power like the hertz level and um i don't know some other number that doesn't fucking make sense because it's not a real thing um this raises the paradox of like yeah so the only way faraday gets this solution is by desmond time traveling and meeting him 2004 so then how does he have it in 1996 it's it's a paradox. Um, this mm-hmm. is again objects with no origin. You get an answer that he supplied to himself through another through another person. It just 
it doesn't actually work in terms of how time works, but that's yeah. what makes this a fun little sci-fi thing. Um, but really what, what makes this, what makes this particular episode to me is that Desmond needs is constant and, and so something that exists in the way that uh, Faraday defines a constant is something that exists in both times um, so that he can anchor his consciousness into from wherever it started. Um, and in true Lindelofian fashion, this constant is a person. And probably in really even beyond, maybe, well, I'll get to this. In very Lindelofian fashion, the constant is a person and his constant is his love of his life, Penny. Um, uh, Penny Widmore. So... Mm-hmm. Even though we're presented with this complex idea of consciousness time travel and how the prolonged side effects will eventually kill him if he can't find his con- constant, what saves him and really what is to me most memorable about this episode is that what really saves him are the faith that he and Penny have in each other and the fact that their love didn't diminish over eight years for her. Um, mm-hmm. That... Could you imagine someone showing up, someone that you just broke up with, showing up on your doorstep and telling them, eight years from now, I'm going to give you a phone call and I need you to answer. Like, you you have to answer this phone call. Otherwise, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And she does. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. of all the things that happened in this episode, and it's a great episode, it's the way that they cut in between um, him losing consciousness in 1996 and, and 2004 is pretty great. But, like, that's the enduring thing to me that I'll always remember from this episode. And for, for every single Lindelofian, every single Lindelof project, there's always this undercurrent of how, despite the bizarre things that are going on, I'm left with, like, the emotional impact of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Definitely, dude. This, um, I'm going over the uh, the Wikipedia description for this episode again. And it is, he's with the... the Royal Scots Army or whatever. So okay, like yeah, so he's in Scotland. He's like yeah. be in Scotland or something like that. But this this idea of the constant, I thought was a genius writing thing. And like the way that they um, do this whole thing at the end with Faraday and Desmond Hume being the contact, the constant and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just thought was like this was on like a whole other level for me and stuff. Like this was like one of the first examples of my like post 21 life where I was just like, my God, this is incredible television writing. Like I I'd never seen like anything like this before. And the way that this uh, episode was executed, even comparison to the way that other lost episodes have executed, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant and stuff. And like this, it's just showing like how these characters is being connected on like so many different levels and stuff. And in different time periods, it just really illustrates like some, some very Lindelofian, concepts and stuff like that which um i do have a feeling we're going to be discussing here in a little bit but um it's it's just very very like highbrow but also like a beautiful story kind of like all at the same time and like this love story between desmond and penny became this like almost like B love story that you're like, maybe even like a C story by now love story that you're really like rooting for. Mm -hmm. And it's really like the only love story on the show that's like sort of pure to its own degree, because there's the whole Jack Kate Sawyer love triangle and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like a son and Jin's like marriage and everything like that. Like those, I think that that is definitely like a needed element of the show. Mm -hmm. And you're like automatically kind of rooting for them to a certain degree. And maybe not so much in the beginning because Jin's a total asshole, but but once we get the understanding of why Jin is the way he is, then it makes significantly more sense. 
Right, right. And and this one was like this was like the love story that, you know, it didn't really have any of the stupid kind of love triangles, typical telephone television nonsense like this was almost like a very very fresh way of like telling a love story and when the two of them made contact and everything like that over the phone i mean that was just like one of those like it really kind of got to you moments like that was one of the most like greatest moments of like kind of like joy and everything like that on the show and stuff like that because occasionally they have these sort of like coming together like happy moments on the show most of the time it's like around a campfire and stuff oh yeah but this one was just like totally different but it was but it was executed so well yeah executed really really well um i think i think that's sort of I, i that might be like the calling card not just for lindelof but like everyone involved in lost when they needed mm-hmm. to land an emotional moment in the middle of like all the crazy stuff that they're like trying to pull off, they almost, they, they never fail. They've never failed at it. Yeah. Right. Right. And is this, um, when he makes the call to Penny, is that the, that's the second time we go off the Island in, in 2004, right? Like, cause they, there's a signal that gets caught at some point in time, but when we see her, that's the only like present, time off of the island ever since they send the signal right i feel like you're correct yes okay because I, I know that there's an, uh, an episode where like a signal is detected and we go to like a room somewhere and it's like oh hey oh my god look at this but i thought that this was like one of the other moments where we are off of the island in the current time i think you're right like this would this is season three I believe or four. I I think this is season four. You might be right. I have to, I'd have to look back at, I'd like, I probably should have pulled up the episode list here, but I think you're correct. It it is season four. Yeah. Yeah. I I know that there are these times where they go off the Island. They're very limited. And I think this might be one of at the most three times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think you're right though. Oh, and how yeah. great is it to have a uh, Jeff Fahey, the lawnmower man, in an, in an episode? I know that's for sure. I know. Oh, something <laughs> he was in it for a while. Too. He was. I was. I was. I was really surprised when he first showed up. I was really surprised that, that how off a how often he was in it, and b that he makes it to the end. Like, really surprised. Yeah, I know, right? Like, such a weird, like, just such this like really offshoot but kind of interesting character and. The fact that it's Fahey and stuff like that, I just think makes it all the better to yeah. me. Just seeing that guy's eyes and that mug and stuff like that in the show for as long as he was. Yep. And he was a great character too. Yep, absolutely. Um, since I I was I, I thought I remembered this from the episode when we're when you're we're, when you're talking about Jeff Jensen. I thought I remembered this from the episode of the podcast I was listening to, but yeah, Je- Jeff Jensen is one of the candidates in the cave. Oh really? Like that's how well respected he was that the writers put the writers stuck his name in, in, a, in a different number as one of the candidates in the cave. That's fucking awesome, dude. Yeah. Like I I love when shit like that happens. Just little dumb shit like that, I absolutely love. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Any uh, just real quickly here, we don't have to like really dive into them. Did you have any other episodes you were thinking about? Well, like I did like. A, after watching the pilot again, the pilot is very, very Lindelofian yeah. for a pilot. Like, I think that that is a really, really great execute, really, really great um, example of that. And um, the other example, the other one that I was going to use, I can't remember the exact title of it. Um, it's when Locke sees J- well, like hears Jacob's voice in the cabin and stuff like that. Oh, I yeah. really, yeah. really loved that episode and stuff. And like when we really like when we really start to follow this Jacob storyline, cause I'll tell you, like it's, 
introduced a lot later on. Like, you know, we don't get the Jacob thing even right away with the others. It's kind right. of like a kind of a slow burn on that. But when they do the um, the Jacob thing, this was just like such like it was so lost. Like this was such an like an identity so on brand for the show where yes, hey, we're going to meet this guy, Jacob, okay? He takes to this magical cab, this little fucking cabin. We go in there where he's supposedly there, and then the chair's empty, and then something happens. We see a little shadow, and then we hear this character's voice, and it's a voice that, like, Ben Linus never heard. So, like, there right. was just so much going on in that, like, in that little sequence there that was, that struck me as very Lindelofian in some way. I if, if, I can't remember if he wrote that show specifically, but that right. moment I thought was very Lindelofian. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I often wonder if that wasn't a case of they didn't know who was going to be this character. <laughs> So yep. they just were like, all right, how about just like a voice in the darkness and a shadow? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. like, but it's one of those things that worked out to its benefit to not no, have someone dude, sitting there. You are hitting on something that Jess and I spent like 30 minutes talking about, which I'm not going to go into the depth of what we went to here last night. But we were talking about like how I feel that like I can't decide if this show like – backed itself into corners or if this was like the way it was supposed to be the entire time. And the reason that I think about this is all because of the writer strike and how like the writer strike abbreviated the one season and they ended up resuming with um, five episodes like in May and stuff like that mm -hmm. after they kind of worked everything out. They're like, all right, we're going to bring Lost back. And, right. and I actually believe that that is one of the reasons that it propelled Lost to the success is because no one really had anything new to watch <laughs> that um, during 2008, that, that year in the early summer. So um, I, there are times where like, I look at certain things, I look at certain storylines, particularly like Jacob and the man in black, um, you know, even like where they were going with the smoke monster. And like, I start to wonder, I'm just like, was this the original intent or did they get backed into certain corners and it's just like, oh, hey, you guys only have 20 episodes left and now you have to kind of start assigning meaning to various things that they introduced early on. And um, what was going on there with that particular scene, it just kind of strikes me if like they maybe like not only did not know who the actor was going to be, but if they were even going to have Jacob be a person like yeah. they, we'd actually see like later on. So all that is questions and stuff that like, I don't even know, like you and I will never be able to like kind of answer that without actually interviewing one of the people on the show. But there was just so many things where it's like, I didn't even really know if lost was ever like just all of a sudden picked up for five seasons or something. Like it just seemed like it was one of these shows that was either always on the chopping block or they always had, they had to prove itself. And once they had proved itself, they're like, Hey, by the way, you're only getting two more oh, seasons. No, left. They, and that's that, kind of how they, that's the thing. ABC wanted them for like 10 or 11 seasons okay and it was around season three that they were that Lindelof and everyone was like we need to like end this way sooner than that there is okay no possible way that we could keep this going for 10 years and they okay. pointed they pointed very specifically to the episode where Jackson Thailand um mm -hmm. and which is like one of the one of the episodes that people like very collectively just do not like they're just like we're running out of things to talk about with these people off the island like we okay we just can't continue this and so that's when like they were able to because abc was like all right fine how about eight seasons 
And they're like, no, how about we end this with a sixth season? Because like, like, that's as far out as we can plot this without things okay. becoming really fucking gross and weird and, and, and having more episodes like that episode. Okay, that's good because like last night, like we were having this discussion and stuff. Like I, I totally did not know any of that. And when I was, when you're watching the show kind of unfold, that's kind of how it was felt. How you're some feelings that you had sometimes, where it's just like, okay, like they're wrapping stuff up. They gotta like do this. What are they going to do to address this? You know, and that the Jacob thing I thought was like a prime example of that because even the guy that they picked to play him. I was like, oh, wow, it's the guy from um, the movie with Chris Klein and Heather Graham. And I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. But like he's like one of the redneck brothers or something. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, it's this guy. Um, and the like, actor's I, I think, Mark Pellegrino. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And like and, and it was even like when I think that scene with him and Titus Wolliver, that might be the only time we see the man in black as a person and stuff. So um, I there was just some things that seemed to me like they were trying to wrap some stuff up or maybe did not know where they were going. And that Jacob scene in the I, house is kind of the, yeah, I think I, it, I think it was mostly, they didn't really 100% know where they were going. Cause it's very clear to me. They had no idea what the others were actually going to be like until I gotcha until we actually saw them basically. Yeah. 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 I, there's, um, I can't remember like the exact buildup to the others, but I'm glad we I'm glad we met them early on and it wasn't something that was drug out and we met them in like season four or something like that. Right. But well, before then it was just whispers in the woods because again, That's right. I, That's they didn't right. have, they really didn't have any idea like what exactly <laughs> these people were going to, were they going to be like people or they're going to be mm-hmm. like some kind of supernatural entity? Like for sure, there is no way that they had that 100% nailed down by season one. Oh God, no. Like and it even seems like they're still trying to figure out some of the stuff as we go along with, oh, the, yeah. with the, the others and stuff too. And using like some of the things with Dharma to just kind of do, have cool stuff like beer on the Island, have sure. different things on the Island, you know, like give these characters the opportunity to like get drunk and do stupid shit, you know, right. which usually comes in the, the realm of television and mm-hmm. stuff. So exactly. Yeah. I, I, I know what you're saying for sure. Yeah. All right, so let's let's move on. Uh, I don't I don't have any other final lost thoughts here. So let's move on to what I'm calling the lost offspring. Um, there are a lot of shows that tie very directly back to Lost. I'll, I'm going to give you a quick. Uh, I'll give you the quick rundown here um, of shows that you can tie, and not just like some of them are just like sort of in spirit, you know, the same idea mm-hmm. as Lost. But for the most part, these all have a tie back to uh, an executive producer, a writer, a director, um, and they all most for the most part came like in, in the immediate aftermath of Lost. So this is just a quick rundown, and I'm definitely not including everything. There's more. Um, <clears throat> Salvation, The Returned, Bates Motel, Colony, Once Upon a Time, Dead of Summer, Tron Legacy, the movie, Alcatraz, mm-hmm. Salem, Sleepy Hollow. And then NBC went has gone fucking berserk in the past five years with this, with airplanes disappearing. Uh, the event, <laughs> Manifest, and Departure are all NBC joints where an airplane disappears. Terra Nova, mm-hmm. Flash Forward. Flash Forward was, like, definitely positioned as the lost replacement on ABC, and it never happened, obviously. Yep. Uh, yep. The, the entire Cloververse, the Cloverfield movies. Uh, Revolution. Heroes believe... Person of Interest, Westworld, The Last Ship, Under the Dome, Debris, and literally probably 30 more. 
Yeah, and now that you mentioned some of those names, I, I can't remember all of the specifics, but I do remember even like Terra Nova yeah. from the something of Lost, the writers of yep. Lost. They had like they even some of these actually mentioned that Lost that it, that it came from the people from Lost in the trailer and yep. stuff like that to try to hook people in. Mm-hmm. Exactly, or. Or very, like, in, in some of the cases, like, Alcatraz had um, Hurley's, one of the main characters in Alcatraz. And in, like, mm-hmm. Hurley is very much in, it's Sam, Sam Neill and Hurley are, like, the two big draws. And, like, yeah. Hurley's all over the advertisements for that show. All over. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I remember. Yeah. I have some imagery come into my mind about that. Yeah, yes. definitely. <laughs> yeah, so there's, I mean, that's just a sampling. I mean, again, there are more, sh- and there are more shows in recent years that aren't related to, like, a producer or a writer that are just in spirit of what the show, of what Lost was about. I actually just watched one that mm-hmm. was not bad. Have you seen The Wilds? Uh, I have not, actually. It's, it's like, Lost for, like, Gen Z. It's it's kind of bizarre. Really? But like, kind of, but, like, it's, def- it's definitely not being targeted at our age group. Let's put it that way. But it's still kind of okay. fun. Okay, very interesting. Like, I'm... There's so many questions that I have, but I will save those for a later date. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. a lot going through my mind right now, especially when you mentioned Gen, Gen Z stuff. There's a lot of directions I think the show could be going, but um, I had never heard of that. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's kind of a it's a quirky little show, but it's it's actually kind of fun when you get into it. Um, but for sure, there are like true there there are like the true children of Lost though. And we've talked about them mm-hmm. at various points here, and I don't think you'll disagree with this, that there are three tr- three, tu- uh, three true children of Lost. And I'm just going to go through them in, in order, like when they, when they, when they uh, came on the air. Uh, the first child of Lost is Fringe. Um, this is from mm-hmm. the J.J. The Abrams uh, part of the family tree. Uh, but you do have um, Frederick E.O. Toy and Michael Zinberg, who directed on Lost, are uh, direct episodes of this show. And then you have some appearances from Henry Ian Cusick, uh, Hurley's in it for a few episodes. Um, so you get some of the, you get some of the lost people that pop up on the show. Um, of note, uh, Lindelof then works with, uh, this crew on rebooting the Star Trek movies. Um, he's one of the executive, yeah, one of the executive producers on that first Chris Pine Star Trek movie. And now, this group of this group of producers, Alex, led by Alex Kurtzman and Roberto uh, Orsi, I don't think it's Orsi or Orki, um, but they are in charge of all things Star Trek now. Um, all the movies, all the TV shows, they are the production uh, crew for it. Really, I did not yeah. know that. Yep. Um, so there you go. Um, so Fringe is like the first child. The second child, um, I think. Yeah, the second child. I would. I would say the the one that. Um, it's the leftovers um, adapted and written by Lindelof. The book is written by it's Tom Parada book. Correct. You're correct. Yes. It's Tom Parada. HBO has a hard on for Tom Parada. Um, like a hard <laughs> on for Tom Parada. Um, but the leftovers adapted and written by Lindelof. And this one is by far the show that most closely, closely resembles lost in its story beats, the way it's presented, some of the quirkiness. Um, I don't know about you. You could convince me Chema that this is, is the same universe as lost. I can, I can get back. I can back you up on that and stuff. Like there's a lot of things, even just the way that the story is told and the way that it's structured and everything. Like I, I could buy into that all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then finally we get to the, it's almost like, I, I don't like, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't mean to dog fringe or leftovers. Cause I love both of them very much, but it's, it's almost like these shows, 
as the children are born, they just get better and better. Um, because then we get Watchmen mm-hmm. adapted and written by Lindelof. And this one's a, a definitely a different exploration of humanity and God and all the relationships people form. And, and if we're, if we're being frank, this is the best of the children. Yeah. I got to tell you like Watchmen. Um, not only do I have just such a love for the, the source material and stuff like this, by far and away, like this was just something that I think fans and everybody have wanted. Like, I, th- I actually think that Alan Moore might be happy with it if he was ever happy about anything. <laughs> Probably not. And like, but, but like, it's weird because like the leftovers, like it's so goddamn good that like, I, while I personally feel that like Watchmen, like just blue, like I just, it's so accessible. I mean, it's just so, it's so easy to follow. It's great and everything. But for some reason, like, I think like the leftovers and I, I could be way wrong on this, but like I would out of the three, I'm thinking like Lindelof might like tip his hat, the, the proudest to the leftovers because it's just, it's so fucking good, dude. It, I, it really is so good. I, I think of, for me, I've, I've seen the leftovers now probably like three and a half times through. Um, mm-hmm. To me, it, it remains the most rewarding watch. Um, not just mm-hmm. of uh, not just of the ones we're talking about here. It remains one of the most rewarding watches that I have. Period. To one of my rewatches. Yeah, it's so good, dude. Like, there's just there's so many different and beautiful things going on there, and he explores so many different stuff. There's characters on there that, like, it's just. Like, I didn't really ever think that I would be so captivated by Patty Levin, but, like, yep. captivated as shit. Like, yep. such an amazing character. And, like, little things, like, all along the way, um, like, these guys we meet, like, Holy Wayne and stuff. And even the idea of this departure just seems like something that is just so right up his alley. And we had talked before off air about, like, this... Um, dumb project that I got stuck working on with this douchebag I'm no longer working with. Um, like just about like all this like religious symbolism stuff. And I'm just like, bro, like, have you watched the leftovers? You have no new original takes on God. There aren't any like, <laughs> right. be- be- between dogma and the leftovers. What else do we have to say? Like what other quirky points of view do we have about religion? Now? I mean, you could make like, religious symbolism like in movies no problem but like if we're talking like actual like you know people sitting down having religious discussions there are no discussions to be had and like if for people out there that are thinking that they're going to write the next like hot take on the bible turned into a movie or show you're not it's done no like yep. it's the yep. dogma and the leftovers it is done yep absolutely absolutely and i think um and like i i think with the with the leftovers there's there's not at least for me i mean obviously like it, it's it's about it's about god and again like a very um a more judeo-christian idea of what god is but despite the character and presence of matt jameson in the show it some of the religious metaphors and um you know some of the analogous stuff doesn't feel as heavy-handed as it does from lost no, that's a really good point, dude. You're really, that's a really, really good point. Like Lost definitely like had a heavier hand in some of the, like the more mythology and like religiously centered stuff. And I guess it's just because like Matt is just such like a commanding character and such a great character that a lot of his stuff is like what I take from the show. You know, yeah. and I mean they're they're even like we're in season three of the leftovers and there's this episode where it's just like Matt and a couple people sitting around a table and stuff. And it's like a 10 minute discussion on like a a chapter of the Bible and stuff. And 
it's um while you get well, while you get that like with him um it, overall the religious element doesn't feel as in your face because there's so much more cooler stuff to focus on on the leftovers than just like Matt's religious discussions. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, again, and I say this, there's literally an episode where Kevin is deified in a religious book by Matt Jameson. So like, right. I mean, like it's there. I, but I think I, you know what I think it is. It's less, it's less about a specific religion or God and more about the idea of this, like kind of unknown. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. 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 This like the unknown elements of the higher power. Right. Which is, which is, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like, this isn't like some definitive take or anything, but it's something that I've always thought about that. Like, we just kind of assign God to the unknown. If we can't mm-hmm. explain it, then clearly some some being or some you know some entity is the one doing it. If we can't explain it, oh God, I I do this three times a week, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Easily, yes, that is something that I I do. I know a lot of other people do, and I feel that it's just it's basically the easiest thing. Like, what is the greatest unknown to us? Like, I it, or one of the greatest unknown to us is the concept of of religion is the, the concept of God and stuff. And even the people who have this connection with God that they feel, they are still just as much in the unknown as you mm-hmm. and I are. The most religious person in the world knows nothing more about the Lord than you and I do. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and something like the leftovers, um, you know, the sudden departure happens and you have people on both sides on the, the side of science and the side of faith trying to prove it. But no one can. And which is kind of right. the point that sometimes things just fucking happen and there is no explanation for mm-hmm. it. Exactly. Um, so f- let's, uh, from the children here, from these three shows, um, can you give me some motifs that, that you know, that were, present lo- that were present and lost and then run through all of these shows? And I know you're not a Fringe okay. person, so I'll, I'll fill in some stuff, you know, as, as it re- relates to Fringe. Okay, cool. Yeah, some of these I... I went with those three. If there's any examples in Fringe, definitely let me know. Because I, yeah. I, I watched like a season of it, but some of the story elements are a little lost on me. But I have some light familiarity. Yeah, with yes, yeah. Don't worry about that. I'll, I'll fill in stuff. No big deal. Awesome, awesome. So the first one that I have is this motif of characters with God or Messiah complexes. And we see this in all three shows, whether... Um, it's the the island lock um, relationship, mm-hmm. or even like here's a fr- here's a fringe one for you, like Walter playing God, and yep. you're gonna have to correct me on this one, dude. But it's like the Josh Jackson that we meet in the first season, Peter is actually he's he's dead in that reality, correct? So he had to go to another reality to bring the Peter that we know into the reality of the the show, the presence of the show. Yes. He tampers with the laws, all the laws, all the known laws of, of science and nature. He tampers with to bring his son back to his side. 
Gotcha. So, so Walter's got the, the God complex yep. going on there too. Um, let me see. My other on my list is, uh, okay. So we have Holy Wayne as a light, like Messiah complex mm-hmm. here, where it's this guy, you know, hug me and I will relieve you of your pain, which then later on gets transferred down to, um, Kevin's son, whose name of which escaping me right now. But it's almost like when he does it, I think, he sees the truth behind it and stuff like that. And now it's just a way to give people something, whether he actually believes in it or not. Right. Um, and then the, the other thing, which I, I totally forgot about this. I had to go back um, after thinking about this for a couple days. There was this character on the show, David Burton. He's in the episode. Um, it is. Oh, where they're um, on the, um, they're on the ferry, the cruise ship. Yeah. Yes. The, yeah. They're, they're on the ferry and stuff. And it's the, the lion and everything like that there is this wonderful exchange between Matt and this character that kind of takes place in this like abandoned room on the ship and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And um, this is this character that he believes he is God. And I'm not going to lie for a second there in the episode. I'm like, is he <laughs> like it's yeah. like it's eaten by the tiger? You can't, like it's eaten you by can't, the lion, which <laughs> right? Yeah, it gets eaten by by um. What, what's his, what's the lion's name? Oh God, like it's Cecil the lion or something. It's got a real unusual name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, yeah but even um, then, Matt can't prove that he's not God. Right, that's true. That's very true. So like that whole um that character definitely having the the God complex, and then you have um. Azumandias, who's a Mondo God complex yes. going on. You don't get so much of it in this Watchmen, but if you've read the comic or seen the other movie, or if you've seen the movie or read the comic, it's a little more apparent there. But when his um, going to Europa and being this God of Europa, we have the personification of this guy with a God complex. And then there's also the actual, like what we see as God, which is Dr. Manhattan. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, love that one. Love that one. Do you want to? Uh, well, do you want to alternate? Or do you just want to go through? Oh, I'll just go through. You might okay. have just in case you might have some of the other. The yeah. other two aren't as as, as long. So, okay. um, the the other motif that I noticed is um, interconnectedness of characters. Uh-huh. Characters are connected in the past, in the present, in a flash sideways, in the future. Um, and the thing is, is like sometimes when they're connected in the past, it's just basically through a random encounter, you know, yeah. or like a very, very short, brief encounter. Somebody shows up, then they're not then only to resume in another time period with a completely different character. Mm-hmm. So everybody is kind of all in this in this web together, even including the leftovers, um, like even in Watchmen, too. But a lot of the connectedness of Watchmen comes from the source material. Right. So right, they, you exactly. don't get too much of it, but, but it is there. Right. And then the last, the last motif that I have is um, the idea of the big event. So mm-hmm. in lost, it's the, uh, the, the plane crash, the big plane crash, everything that happens in the first, that's revealed in the first like three minutes of the show. It is the same thing in the leftovers with the big departure, the great departure, I should say happens within the first five minutes of the, uh, the pilot. And then um, in Watchmen, the big event, realistically, it's um, it could be either be the squid monster from the book that kind yeah. of sparks everything that we see in the, the show because the squid monster happens at the end of the, the comic or it is um, or if you would like to um, it, big event adjacent, the white knight might be also the adjacent, I, the night where all the police officers yeah. are killed. Yeah, exactly. I think you could. I think you can make the argument. At least I would go with the White Knight first because that's the one, as 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 it gets revealed, 
that reveals who mm-hmm. Cal Abar actually is. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, the, the White Knight would be the event of the show, and like the Squid Monster might be the, the event, event of, of the, the entire universe. Yeah, yeah, the mythology. Yes, yeah, that's even better. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. With, totally agree with you there. Um, yeah, no, I like that. I like, I like all of that. And it's and it's funny the interconnectedness, even though it's not heavy in the Watchmen, it, in Watchmen, it it is there literally, like a literal interconnectedness with Doctor Manhattan. Um, Angela and her grandfather all at once. Like we mm-hmm. actually do get like a yeah. whole scene of it happening all at once, which is pretty cool. That's um, right, definitely love that. Um, so yeah, we we hit on some of the I, again. Like I think we're I think we're good here that we're hitting on things that are similar, but like there's a different facet to them. So you had like sort of like the you know the godlike you know there's like a godlike figure, um, and alternately there are people there are people, the characters and obviously Lindelof himself, but questioning the nature of God or a higher power. Um, specifically in, in lost it's, it's questioning of God and religion altogether in fringe. You're questioning science and the people who wield that sort of knowledge and the leftovers. Mm -hmm. You're questioning the supernatural or the unexplainable, you know, cosmic powers beyond anything that we've experienced yet. And then when you get to Watchmen, you're, questioning actual gods and people wielding immense power um right. so doesn't really matter how you want to stack them up it's just sort of people looking at things above them and wondering you know trying to make sense of it all um yeah no definitely yeah, go ahead. sorry go ahead that right right on the head dude like while there is the god and the those complex characters there's all the also the people questioning their relationships with the the higher power of yeah. the episode um, and something, something that I touched on, I've already touched on multiple times, but, um, acceptance and forgiveness runs through all of these shows. The, the people have to come mm-hmm. to term with their emotional trauma, uh, other people's emotional trauma and the consequences of their own actions. Um, you know, like just to, just to bring it back to the ending of Watchmen, you know, we, we finally, when we, when we get to the resolution of, of all the action and, uh, Angela and her adopted children are there with, um, uh, with her grandfather, you know, he tells her that like, you know, how, he, I, he makes mention he's like 105 years old, I think is how old he's supposed to be. And he kind of mentions how, like how long it took him and those 105 years it took him basically the entire length of his life to sort of come to terms that like, you know, the, he says, what's the line? Um, you know, you, um, you can't wear that mask forever. Wounds need, you know, wounds need air. And, mm-hmm she has to like just accept that she has lost, you know, Dr. Manhattan slash Cal and that the life that she's been living has to, has to go to, right? Like that's, that's the acceptance that she has to get to. And once you get into the later seasons of fringe, man, there's a lot of accepting and forgiving between Walter and, and Peter, between Olivia and Peter, between all these other characters that they introduce, there's a lot of acceptance Mm -hmm. and forgiveness. And obviously in the leftovers, it ends with, Again, takes Kevin Garvey into his 60s. And for that matter, it takes fucking Nora Durst into her 60s to fucking right. finally forgive each other and accept accept that they aren't perfect, but they are perfect for each other. Oh, definitely. And, like, with Nora specifically, like, her acceptance of of everything that happened with her family. Like, yeah. You know, her almost, like, denial or coping with the loss of her family. I mean, but you could throw denial in there because she yeah. decides to get transported to another, uh, right. to like a, a reverse reality type thing. But 
she gets there and she sees them and she sees that they're happy and it's almost like that is good enough. Like that's what she wanted. Like she didn't necessarily want them back. She just wanted closure as to where they were and stuff. And like her acceptance of that, I, I think paves the road for her later forgiveness and acceptance of Kevin. Cause I don't believe that if she had that closure that she would be, having she would be as accepting of him as she was and there was a little bit of conflict there but ultimately she accepted it i i absolutely agree that and again that's if you even believe nora but um right. which is a whole other again that's a lindelof thing right there if you even believe her but the point being that like a lot of people most people on the planet didn't have that chance to get that to get mm-hmm. that like last to get that answer which is what everyone's struggling with and why they can't move on like it's again like right. imagine someone not someone even dying that you know, someone just disappearing totally without any answers to it. It, it, it that would really fuck you up. It would fuck you up enough if someone you you loved died in a car accident or something. But at least you know mm-hmm. what happened. Right. Yeah, I'm telling you, dude. Like the the opening scene when everybody's disappearing and they specifically center on the baby crying. Like the camera makes it aware that there's a child crying. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when it's not crying, like the reaction that the mother has like that gradual build up to it is just like absolutely perfect and then we later see her again in like a bar with kevin or something like that yeah it's just um like i personally like i've never been through uh, the rapture or whatever but like the way that they captured those emotions from people i believe to be spot on yeah yeah absolutely uh last thing here um I, i call this the battle between faith and knowledge in the space of the unknown it's Mm -hmm. extreme circumstances that test the limits of someone's faith or someone's knowledge and expertise and they're thrown into a kind they're thrown into this arena where like we don't know who is actually we don't know who's going to come out on top because this is so totally different um obviously you you crash on this on this island and lost and you know there's even an episode man of science man of faith as they try to explain try to explain their circumstances and what the fuck's going on. It's, it's kind of painting, you know, the, the show and that episode in particular is kind of painting the picture that like, it it doesn't matter. Like neither of you are going to end up right. If Mm -hmm. if being right is even that important. So all of these shows just deal with that sort of, that constant battle of knowing, of knowing things or just wanting to believe things. Right. That is something that is that is actually one of something that I had listed for the next question and stuff. That is something that it is almost like that is almost as apparent in David Lindelof's writing as the words fade in in the script. Okay, like that is something that it must be like his either his favorite thing to explore or he might have some kind of personal connection to faith versus logic or whatever it is. And um, with something that is so apparent in his work, you could definitely tell that it's a subject that means a shit ton to the author. I, I mean, Lindelof is, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, I know he's Jewish. I'm guessing he's um, maybe not religious, but like is interested in theology as like just a concept and as like an academic study. Yeah, like he has to be. For sure, dude. Like you don't, you don't put out the dialogue that Matt did in the leftovers without a textbook knowledge, like actual knowledge, not just me going to Wikipedia to find something out. But I personally believe that 
some of the conversations that were done in the leftovers, he could walk out of the room and have that conversation with Joel Olstein if he wanted to. Oh, you know, yeah, like, no, well, Joel, Joel yeah. Olstein probably doesn't know that much about religion. That's a bad example, but a, a theology scholar. <laughs> right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, like, you have Matt Jameson dropping stuff about, like, the Pharisees, which are, like, a group of, like, if I'm remembering correctly, the Pharisees are, like, a group of, like, Jewish clerics. Um, like, there's just, like, there's stuff in there that, like, clearly this guy knows what he's talking about in or mm-hmm. or at the very least he's done his homework on this because he's just interested in it yeah exactly like you can kind of tell like I, for me personally because i just in my own writing like i could tell the difference between it's something that i don't know that much about and i'm just trying to kind of like skate along between something that i actually do know a lot about like there's a there's a world of difference between the two Yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so how about that? Let's move to the second question here since you brought it up. Any smaller Lindelofian touches or style points that are present in The Lost Offspring? Okay, um, nonlinear storytelling. There's not any straight lines. There's a lot of jumping around and everything. Um, This, you could also include the manipulation of time. Like, you know, or not, I wouldn't necessarily call it like time travel, but it's just like manipulating time and past and present future all that kind of stuff yeah so there's there's um I, I know i've told you this before i can't remember if it was on podcast or off air but like that's how fringe like reset seasons by just like totally changing reality like where they are in space and time oh okay okay yeah that might have been an off-air one okay definitely yeah okay um so nonlinear storytelling is one um, I did mention the whole like destiny versus like free will thing. This ch- did Alan, Angela even challenges this when she knows what's going to happen to Cal, but she still gets the gun and takes on the seventh cavalry anyway and stuff. Yep. And for a moment, it's almost like Dr. Manhattan is going to be wrong. But when is Dr. Manhattan ever right, wrong? He can't you be. know, so <laughs> really, really great job of carrying that, um, that destiny versus free will all the way even to like the, the later parts of Watchmen, I thought mm-hmm. was a really good example of that. Um, here's one that I, I noticed, and I don't know if they mentioned this in Fringe, but like, what is up with Lindelof in Australia? Dude, he fucking like, loves Australia. <laughs> loves Australia. I, I, I like, I noticed this when I was doing the leftover um, watch that, you know, like Lost has got the uh, Australia connection, the leftovers, we go there and we're there for a long yep. time. Yep. So, I once this might be something that I just have to ask Damon himself, but it's like, you know, like, is there some type of like symbolism or some type of hidden meeting beyond um, Australia? Because I'm just I'm just incredibly like infatuated by by that. Yeah. The only thing that I can I can think of is when we get into the leftovers and we're following um, we're following Kevin's dad around um, on his quest to find Christopher Sunday. I think that's who he's trying to find. Um, that is who he's trying to find. Yeah, yep. he's trying to find Christopher Sunday to get um, to get like the, the final um, the final chance from like these um, from these like Aboriginal. Um, I don't know exactly what what kind of chance they're called, so I'm not going to try to stretch this any farther. But um, I, I guess maybe Lindelof just sees it as a place where there's still like a lot of mysticism because you do have like a you do have like that Aboriginal culture still pretty in place. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I can yeah. think of. Your guess is as good as mine on that one, dude. Like there's for me, like I thought the leftovers, like Australia almost just kind of being this, you know, it's in the Southern hemisphere and stuff. It's like just certain inverses about the way things are here in America. That that was like one thing that led me there. But honestly, dude, like 
your guess is as good as mine. It could be if somebody were to come in and tell me that like, you know, he fell in love down there. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that sounds good enough. You just got an emotional it, connection to it. Seriously. It's probably something real simple. Like he went on vacation there and just loves it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. He's he like, loves, Hey, why not? He loves fosters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, th- I, that was actually, that was actually something I put down too. that this motherfucker loves Australia. <laughs> Yeah, loves Australia. So that that was one of my second ones. Um, there's like a lot of like redemption stuff that mm-hmm. um, goes through these things. Like it's a, uh, in some way I think like Kevin Garvey is like it's a redemption story. Whether he's redeeming himself with Nora, uh, the daughter, like even just in life, um, even like I, I'm not gonna lie, like uh, Adrian Veidt in Watchmen, there's a diet, a very diet redemption story going on there. But I don't think that it's like an intentional redemption story. I think that it's like him like trying to come back to the world it's not a strong redemption story yeah. but there is some element of being redeemed there um from he does by, he does one good th- he does one good thing right that's right yeah <laughs> which is way better than i think that might be the only good thing he's probably ever done yeah so, probably um, but but so like there's definitely some elements of like um re- redemption in the in the three stories and pretty much just like a lot of the things we talked about like just like the, the guy, like mythology stuff um and god like that's it that that's it. that's my list <laughs> <laughs> no no that, that was really good um how about this one lindelof loves a good routine there are routines throughout. Um, obviously, like when we first meet Desmond, um, we get mm-hmm. to see his daily routine in the hatch. Um, yeah. Matt Jameson's caretaking routine in the leftovers. Um, mm-hmm. We even see the beginning of a routine in Watchmen with the with the farmers, the, you know, the farm couple, um, before yeah. Lady True crashes the party. That's um, true. And, and all of these, and actually all of these routines are interrupted. They are. Desmond, that is right. They blow up Desmond's hatch. Um, Matt Jameson mm-hmm. just has a just has a mental freak out because he's tired of taking care. Of, he doesn't want to admit that he's tired of taking care of Mary. Um, and then obviously Lady True comes and gives these people a fucking baby. Um, um, right when their routine's gonna like kick off. So like all so they there's routines and they're all interrupted. Very good. I love that. Interesting. Um, TV shows within the TV show. Um, we get uh, in Lost. Oh. We get expose. Um, is a TV show with Nikki. Okay. Where we get the Nikki and Paolo episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Leftovers doesn't have like an overt TV show. I mean, if I guess if you want to include Good Morning Sydney, but not really. But how about Mark Lynn Baker playing himself and using that character to push yes. the narrative forward? Oh, God. Yeah, that was great. I totally forgot about that. That was a fucking awesome little kind of nugget that they yep. threw in there. They even used the, they even used for those episodes that he's in. Or at least one of the episodes that he's in. They even use the um, Perfect Strangers theme music as their theme music. Yes, they did. Yep. Yes, that I did. Yep, yep, totally. Yep. Hysterical. And then, in, and then, obviously, in Watchmen, we have uh, American Hero Story going on in the background the entire time. Yeah, you know, the thing with that American Hero Story, I got to tell you, like, when the show first was being announced. Do you remember they had that like really kind of unusual marketing kind of thing with it's a Watchmen yes. remix, you know, they started, they didn't really explain what it was. And I, I even think Lindelof put on Instagram like two weeks after the show aired, it's just like, Oh, it's a sequel. Sue me or something, you know? So we, right. they did this like really kind of like funky thing to kind of like, um, stave off like what Watchmen was like actually about and stuff. 
but there was one job when I first heard about this show that I was like, there's one job that the show has to do and only one job alone. And it was to explain what happened, the hood of justice. And the minute that I saw that American crime story thing, I'm like, this is, we're getting it. We're going to get this whole thing finally, because the myth of hood of justice and Watchmen is one of those, like um, what happened to Mr. Blue and reservoir dogs type thing. It's kind of like an unanswered question. And a lot of the stuff that they got from American crime story that they, you know, basically even worked in to tell the story of hood of justice. Right. It's not even in the freaking dialogue bubbles in the comics. A lot of that stuff comes from um, if you get the Watchmen collector's edition, like the big graphic novel book in between the different issues of Watchmen, there are like these three or four, like, you know, kind of little stupid things. Like it'll be a um, it could be like a like a little story about like uh, Richard Nixon or something or a fake newspaper headline with a fake story written and stuff. And um, there's a couple of these about Hood of Justice and a lot of the stuff that they worked into the show comes from, comes from there. So like the American crime story edition was once again, not the, the shows, in my opinion, the one job it had to do and it executed it perfectly, but it was also just such this great critique on shows that we have today. You yeah. know, we have the horror story, crime story. Um, I'm sure there's a couple other like stories from Ryan Murphy lingering around out there, <laughs> either in development or on TV, but it's, um, it's just ringing true um, to a lot of the things about our television watching mm-hmm. culture even today. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. And you could even stretch that even farther and how we, how we totally whitewash TV and if we whitewash out, we whitewash out the, the, the characters and stories of color in, in television and movies for that matter. Oh God. Yeah. Oh Jesus Christ. There's like, whitewashing it's been going on for god knows how long even like with tarzan and stuff it's like you're meaning to tell me that this white guy survived perfectly in the african jungle like it's just there's all kinds of like whitewashing and whiteification of different Mm. kind of concepts and stuff like that exactly um this is this is the last one i'll mention here and it's it's especially it's it's an especially strong point in fringe but love is the strongest force in the universe for lindelof Oh God! Yeah, Strongest definitely. force in the universe. It defies space, time, and everything else. Uh, yeah, it like definitely defied a lot of things with Laura and or Nora and Kevin and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember. Jack and Kate don't end up together, do they? In the um, Lost? No, um, they do not. But it's sort of like when, as Jack's dying, it's sort of like the, it, it like their like last moment is sort of him like basically like get off the island i i have to do this for you like this is how i'm going to show my love for you okay gotcha okay because like i i couldn't remember because i knew jack was with juliet at one point in time and like sawyer ends up with her and stuff so there was just some kind of where these stories went that i was just a little confused on uh, yeah, but yeah you're right there's there's some there's some of those relationship things that i i remember but like i would definitely need to see some episodes of lost again to sort yeah. of untangle some of them. But like, obviously like when we're talking about Desmond and Penny, she manages, she believes this deranged man whose time, whose consciousness is time tra- whose consciousness is time traveling. Um, and who she recently broke up with. She answers his phone call eight years later. Um, in fringe, there's, there's some fantastic episodes of fringe. And one of them in particular is a time travel one with, uh, with Peter Weller. 
um, as this time traveling scientist who literally travels back in time to die with his wife. And oh, wow. in the course of this, he also, you know, because he's traveling backwards and he knows everything that's happened, he's done it multiple times. So he's, he has full knowledge of things that have happened. And he's actually met in the course of this episode, he meets Walter multiple times and has discussions with him multiple times. And so he travels back in time to die with his wife. And he also sends, uh, he also sends Walter an anonymous letter. You know, Walter was asking for a sign from the universe that his son would finally forgive him. So he sends him, uh, he sends him a drawing of a white lotus, which is like the, it's like a forgiveness flower in a lot of cultures. And he has no idea Mm -hmm. who it came from. It comes unaddressed. It just like appears in the mail. So like, Fringe was really good in the same way that Lost was really good at hitting those emotional beats and hitting them really hard. Yeah, the way you described that, um, it made a little bit of an emotional impact on myself because, like, that right there is just, it's fucking great. You know what I'm saying? The idea of this whole drawing of a flower and being sent through time and all that stuff, that's just absolutely amazing writing. I mean, that's, and that's why we got, that's why we get the, the thing, the action that sort of kicks off or the event that sort of kicks off everything in fringe, the, the difficulties of fringe, Walter Bishop loves his son so much that he breaks all the laws of physics to get his, his mirror copy of his son from a different universe. Yeah. I got to tell you, like, I did not expect the show to be going there. That's for, that is for sure. I (laughs) did not expect that twist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, man, it's like, it is one of those things like that. It's a very, very common motif and, and theme to explore, but it is very common only because it's so fucking true. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. and like we, it may not, it may be something that we, you know, not everybody feels like every single day of the, the year in their lives or whatever, but it is an emotion that is inherent in all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, even take it to Watchmen, um, that that Doctor Manhattan essentially fell in love um, mm-hmm. when it when it when it seems like he shouldn't be able to, right? Right, right. It even gets to him. Yeah, yeah. It, we got like a little, you know, we got some rumblings of that in in the movie and in the comics where Doctor Manhattan starts to like care about life all of a sudden and shit like that, you know. And the fact that this guy who you know, like, I guess if we're talking personality wise, it really isn't much, but this God figure is more human than I, you know, than I think the, the authors of the source material may have like intended it to happen. Like yeah. That. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, hell he even puts his powers on hold for someone for what, 10 years. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no shit. If that's not love, I don't know what the hell is. Absolutely. 